How's everybody doing? Hoping you're having a fantastic Saturday morning. How you doing, Hassan? I'm doing good, thank you. For everybody who doesn't know, uh, Hassan snuck in during the intro. <laughs> I, I just decided I decided to be impatient and start it without him. I was like, okay, yeah, whatever. I'm gonna start it without Hassan. I'm gonna I'm gonna let everybody know Hassan was late. And then he joins during the intro. So I'm like, great, I can't do that anymore. But you know, I did it anyways. So how how's your how's your Saturday been? You've been uh getting stuff done? Yeah, I got a bunch of stuff done. I finished a lot of my uh ethics stuff that I need to do for my for my project. Uh and I'm working on um working on some stuff to prepare for my my dissertation work. We've never talked about that on here. I think I'll I think I'll keep it that way for a while, maybe. His dissertation work, yes, he's yeah. he's doing he's doing a dissertation on. Uh oh. He's doing he's doing a dissertation on uh, how. Dang, how do I how do I make a joke without getting taken down? Um, oh man, he's doing a dissertation on. But not even we're not even what is it? We're like less than two minutes in, and you're. I know. I'm. I'm. I'm, tr I'm trying to figure out something that would be it's funny insane. that would also not not get me taken down. And it's it's a really hard balance to strike. I mean, there, there's been there has been a few times when I absolutely thought I was going to get my channel taken down from jokes that I said on live streams, but. You know, I'm past those days. I prefer not to uh, take risks anymore. So maybe, maybe that makes me a sellout. Who knows? Maybe, maybe it just makes me a a better streamer. Who knows? So I don't think anything uh, big has happened the last week. Um, we we had the whole news when it came to what was it? Uh, the FBI. Uh, the feds looking into traditionalist Catholic circles. And then also the Vatican apparently is also looking into traditionalist Catholic circles, like internet stuff. I mean, I think that's a good thing to be honest. I, I, yeah. hope, I, I hope I get one day a, a letter from Pope Francis that says the, the Curia and I have been watching your streams. We really like them. We've decided to make you the, the, the grand inquisitor of, of YouTube and allow me to, um, start persecuting youtubers that i don't like one condition but one condition no more talking about the deicide no more that's so, so true <laughs> <laughs> i um, will i will absolutely obliterate uh half of catholic youtubers i will strike down 90 percent of their videos and i will i will make them edit all of them it imagine how glorious that would be to have like an inquisitor of youtube videos to 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 check them all and to like like kind of like a YouTube strike channel strike thing, but it's for the orthodoxy of the content being presented. That would be fantastic. I think um, and actually this is this is still kind of like, but I don't, I don't even actually think I've ever talked about it in public, but. A few a few weeks ago, um, I think it was a few weeks ago. I got this email from Census Fidelium, some of the people that work with them, and yet yeah, owned. 
I got an email from some people who works for uh, Census Fidelium, and they're starting a sort of alternative YouTube platform uh, because uh, YouTube uh, isn't a huge fan of Census Fidelium and some of their affiliates uh, and, and has demonetized them and, and stuff like that. So they're trying to start an alternative platform for Catholic YouTubers, which actually I, I think the I think their plan uh, is pretty good. And I'm definitely going to, once they start, uh, get stuff, uh, getting stuff a little bit more um, solid and together. I'll definitely uh, start streaming there as well uh, because they kind of have an automated uh, automated thing from YouTube to Census Fidelium TV. And they actually have, <laughs> they actually have um, a, a board of people uh, dedicated to uh, removing content that is uh, doctrinally or morally unsound. And I thought that was kind of funny. I wonder what they consider that to be, though. Yeah, I'm I'm not sure uh, what because they they said it's kind of like broad uh, tradism. Because obviously, I asked them like, "Look, I'm not I'm I'm not like big a trad uh, tradition uh, ordinary traditionalist sort of like obviously I'm I, I would be placed in the broad camp of traditionalism." but not really in uh, any sort of like recognize and resist group or uh, anything like that. Although uh, obviously I have uh, a, I have respect for, for a lot of the people in those camps. Uh, but I was like, okay, well, well, I, I mean, I ordinarily go to a Novus Ordo. I pray the, pray the liturgy, the hours, um, like what would I fit in sort of, of this, of this niche that you're building? They're like, yeah, we we're kind of, we're kind of going to be broad with the traditionalist Catholic label and not kick people out for, um, being normies. So I was like, Oh, okay. So I, I think it's just actually, um, but then on the other hand, like, are you going to, uh, equally treat those who go a little bit left of church teaching? To those who go a little bit right of church teaching and uh by that i mean like america this is this is the issue though because um i've been thinking about this a lot and in a certain way i think the church recognizes that there is a manner in which the people attracted to traditionalism are the future of the church and mm. so she needs to uh, and maybe this isn't in the institutions, but I think this is the mind of the church as an ecclesial person, right? I think that the the church, if we speak of her having a kind of like quasi-volition, quasi-intention, quasi-understanding, right? I think she um, she actually knows that these are the people who are going to be filling the parishes, even in the Novus Ordo in the future, the people who care about right? And I think that she wants a course correction in the direction that we're moving with our thing that we're doing right and that ultimately this is actually more important for the future of the church than dealing with the masses of people whose children are all apostates anyway do you know what i mean yeah 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 so That's i mean perspective yeah because I, I i feel like a lot of times um I, I i tend to be a pretty uh broad guy obviously not in a in a laxist sense but there there is a sense that even the traditional authors talk about a, uh like the the word has kind of been memed but like a rigorism uh of sorts uh a sort of narrow-mindedness of sorts even, even though all, all of that stuff has basically become completely useless by the way in which 
uh, liberals have abused uh, those terms uh, as points of attack against those who basically care about things. <laughs> that's that's what they mean by it. But yeah, uh, I I will I I kind of try to uh, have the mindset of understanding that the circumstances we're in are are very unique. They're very difficult, and a lot of people, uh, because of this uh, unique difficulties that are uh, within the hierarchy of the church and within the uh, within within the laity as well, that they sometimes uh, do miss the mark of. Uh, of right thinking and right practice. And they may, on the one hand, veer a little bit to the right. On the one hand, they may veer a little bit to the left. But I usually uh, try to apply solid principles of culpability, uh, understanding what exactly can reduce culpability, and then actually the way in which I think of other people. Uh, I actually apply those principles when, when I think of other people. Uh, I look at somebody and I say, okay, well, obviously they're uh, they're going way to the right here. They they may have a uh, a recognize and resist uh, position, but I mean, when they when they went to their local par their local Novus Ordo parish, they saw something extremely uh, scandalizing. They may have uh, been misinformed by somebody, and that's yeah. that's really the root cause of uh, of this uh, overcorrection. In, well, let's in let's one play. Side. So I, I, I'm not. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna, just gonna crap on them all day, of like course, some other. That's, but that's why I wanna. I wanna have a, a, a like an analogy here for the other side, yeah. right? There are people who've been going to mass every Sunday for their whole lives, and they do do it out of devotion. But because of their social environment, they haven't been able to grasp certain important things, and they've been taught things contrary to the faith, right? Yeah, and they've accepted them because their proximal authorities have said so, and they don't even know how to check against them, right? Yeah. So, so let me. There, there was a, a thing about this that I uh, spoke publicly about, but honestly, not in the best way because I didn't know what kinds of people there were and how they would react. I was still feeling my way around the community at the time. Uh, it was the question of of Eucharistic presence, right? Mm -hmm. What's the effect of transubstantiation? We've talked about this before, the distinction between like a sort of dangerous carnal impenationist view yeah. versus the permissible views with a preeminence to the simple conversion understanding of St. Thomas and his followers, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, without going into the deep scholarly level of knowledge, the very least that somebody should know is that we're not looking at a chunk of flesh that we are deceived by into thinking that it's bread. That's not what we're doing. And this is an incorrect way to look at it. But if somebody has been looking at it that way, they shouldn't be scrupulous about the fact that they used to look at it that way before knowing. Rather, they should be grateful to Christ that he has now brought them to knowledge that will allow them to understand how he has given himself to them to be seen and consumed more, mm. more clearly, right? And the problem is that uh, you find this a lot there's a lot of trans who like to performatively browbeat novus ordites for not knowing yeah. certain things that they haven't been exposed to, right? Sometimes often quite faithful people, although they don't know what doctrines they're supposed to be having faith in because what the church proposes hasn't been proposed to them by their proximate authorities, right? They don't even understand what that means. They don't have a consciousness of that because that's not how they've been taught to interact with the religion, right? Yeah. So so, so you end up with a, a kind of like 
arrogant stamping upon the lack of knowledge and the bad orientation of the general masses of the Catholic people, especially in places like America, the Philippines, and North, Northern Europe, right? Mm. And I think this is completely wrong. People shouldn't behave this way uh, because just as they have this error, on the other side, the, tr the trads have a tendency, unfortunately, towards some people thinking of the mass as a kind of time-traveled Calvary under a, the deceptive form of, of, a, of a procession and a, and a ceremony. And they see the Eucharist as a, as a kind of like deception of bread and wine, where it's actually a hunk of flesh, somehow also containing blood. Like, I, I don't know, have you ever heard this? Uh, I spoke to somebody once who attends a trad mass, been going for three years. And he was under the impression that the reason we say that blood and flesh are both present in the Eucharist is just like when you take a hunk of butcher's meat and there's red fluid in it. Or when you take blood, there's like mm -hmm. particles of flesh in it, right? That's yeah. the impression that he was under. And this is not a super rare kind of misunderstanding. Mm -hmm. and, this, and so it's wrong to look down on people, even though, yes, the transubstantiation and believing in it is more core than these other things. Yeah. They're both important, right? And, mm -hmm. and just, as you, just as you were saying somebody who comes from this bad social environment and they come across terrible abuses terrible homiletics heretical preaching from pastors right mm. that doesn't mean that that we ought to blame them as if they knew exactly what they were supposed to do and they received exactly the right stimulus and they still rejected it it's not fair neither to people with this kind of problem who are who become radical traditionalists nor is it fair to the the average person among the masses of you know novus ordo attendees that don't know what they're doing do you see what i mean yeah it's um and that's this this is kind of uh it's kind of ironic uh, considering the the people that really uh, are the ones who ought to uh who ought to be viewed um with this reduced culpability are those who never view anybody else uh, with this sort of view of reduced culpability. Um, I, I think there's definitely something to that is, is they, they themselves uh, suffer from the defect in which uh, they most voraciously uh, berate others uh, from suffering. Yeah. Which is, which is kind of why I've, I've sort of uh, despised of uh, this recent uh, berated by a bunch of uh, Catholic figures against the the Society of St. Pius X. It's like, yes, I, I do think there's legitimate uh, issues with the Society of, of St. Pius X. Um, and, well, uh, when, when it comes to when it comes to certain uh, views on uh, the safety of liturgical disciplines. Um, but I mean, I'll still I'll still attend their masses. I'm still friends with a lot of people there. Um, I, I and, and when I go there, you you'd almost not be able to tell that I have uh, this view because I don't just go around autistically berating people about <laughs> the, the perceived mistakes that that I uh, that I think that they're suffering under. Uh, if there's somebody there that's knowledgeable, I, I ask questions and have a conversation with them respectfully. But this sort of like catty online. Um, uh, faux traditionalism is just uh, really annoying it's just really annoying like doing doing five ten streams a week on why the sspx sucks and marcel lefebvre is actually a bad guy it's like come on shut up 
Like everybody's everybody. Marcel Lefebvre. Imagine I couldn't imagine the type of stress that he was under uh, after Vatican II. Like growing up in early 20th century France, he was born what 1902, 1906, somewhere uh, the 19 uh, before the 1910s. And growing up in a family where I think half his siblings uh, either were priests or nuns, some type of consecrated life, and uh, ha- having the position of a uh, of apostolic delegate to, to Africa uh, as a missionary, um, just just the life of a early twentieth century traditional uh, bishop. Uh, just, just that sort of light, kind of rem- even removed uh, throughout his life from the uh, the life of a lot of the um, liberalizing tendencies that went on in the 40s and 50s uh, throughout uh, French uh, Catholic academia. So that that's the life he lived, and that's the service he gave to the church. I couldn't imagine having that life. And then going through the 70s and 80s in French Catholicism, like you, you read about the stuff that was going on. It was nuts. Like, like you think you think the crisis is bad today. Back then, it was it, it literally it, it must have been like apocalyptic for him. He must have literally thought that the, it was the end of end of the world. Mm-hmm. That's how bad it was. Like, it, I couldn't imagine the the uh, the psychological effects of having to live through that. Like it must, it, it, he, it, it was, it was certainly a white martyrdom for him to have to live through that. And then to, to just have the, have the audacity to, to sit up here um, and, and to pretend like you just, you, you just know better than uh, you, you just, you, you, you're so, you're, you're so much uh, more uh, uh, sophisticated than Marcel Lefebvre was. And, and you, you can just go and, pretends like he was just some idiot and he was some folksy uh guy who had no idea what he was talking about and uh you, and you're you're more pious than he is um yeah. in in your it, it's it's almost it's almost like the sort of um way in which uh liberals will view uh those in in other aspects that come come from generations before them that yeah they they might have had uh, objectively wrong opinions, or they might have had uh, certain character uh, defects. Like, yeah, sure, we we can admit that, but we we ought to we ought to understand the concept of reduced culpability when we're viewing these figures. Like, yeah, there, there's there's certain uh, th- this is something that that has happened in American history, and yeah, I think I, I I'm not I'm not a fan of of the American Revolution or or uh, many of our American forefathers, but within the sort of scheme of of american thought the way in which uh liberals will view uh i don't know george washington having slaves or or something uh to that effect mm-hmm. it's it's the sort of same same attitude uh that you get and it, it's just it's just disgusting um we, we have exactly. to take people in their own terms we we can acknowledge that like uh that lefebvre made a mistake when it came to his doubt of the new order of consecration of bishops we can understand that he was uh that he was incorrect in his say not accepting uh the general historical perspective on the 
the protection of the the general protection of the ordinary magisterium, right? But again, the second mm -hmm. one, it's understanding why somebody would begin to doubt it, considering everything they see around them and what seems to be the teaching of the church in his time, right? Um, yep. We can understand why he would doubt that. And we can understand how if you come to doubt that, then maybe you would come to start doubting the infallible safety of disciplines, even if we know from research that this is dogmatic. It's not like this was a hot button issue during his formation. It's not like this is something that he would have like have studied properly and known. Nowadays, because of the liturgical crisis, people will be more disposed to know about things like this, right? Yeah. So we can't pretend, oh, we, we know so much better than Lefebvre because he was stupid or impious. We, we can only say because of the crisis we're in, we have easier access to understanding uh, the, or, or obtaining the materials that are relevant to this problem than he did. We, we shouldn't, um, e even if we disagree with, with what he's done, even if we think it was materially like very bad, we can't go and then like say, oh, like I think, I think he was like, you know, an impious person who is, uh, you know, attacking the, the very basis of the authority of the church um, beca because his situation was understandable. Why do I need to defend a blanket, bro? I don't understand. Make Hassan defend his leopard blanket every week. Yeah, what's, Anthony, what's the idea? What, Anthony's, Anthony's a patron, so you have to defend it. Oh, I'm not doing it every week. This is a very old blanket. It's perfectly in shape. There's no damage, and it's extremely comfy, and it's never become less comfy, and I will never stop considering comfy. But I haven't How about during, during Lent, are you going to forgo your leopard blanket and sleep on the floor? Uh, I mean, I'm going to get rid of it anyway because it's getting warmer. <laughs> so, oh. I mean, it doesn't really... Well, what am yeah, I you know, it was, it was 70 degrees here in North Carolina yesterday. That's I'm going nice. to DM you now. Check on Discord when I'm going to give up. One of the things, at least. <laughs> he he said he's he's giving up heroin. Nope. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh. Okay. So we we have some questions. Dang, you guys you guys are pretty lousy in the live chat usually we're we're having to like usually we have scramble. like yeah i know scramble to get through you guys are giving us an yeah. easy morning i guess it's the right time to remind you guys if you enjoy what i do want to support a lot more work uh of me doing then become a patron patreon.com slash militant thomist so i can dedicate more time to doing this sort of stuff so thank you and we're continuing Okay, so uh, Evangelii uh, Gaudium. Oh, I have a I have a super chat. Okay, Matt, I guess. Super chat. So oh, it's Saudi Arabian. It, oh, it's Saudi Arabian money. I'm I'm, yeah. I'm run by the Saudis. I mean, I, I have the Persian blanket, and then now now this. Yeah. Okay, so the church looks upon the people of the covenant and their faith as one of the sacred roots of her own Christian identity. I'm First a fan part of is the church, so. the church which shares with Jews an important part of the sacred scriptures, looks upon mm -hmm. the people of the covenant, uh, and their faith as one of the sacred roots of her own Christian identity. What do you think about that? 
this document is super good. It's like a like a manifesto of a post-Vatican II uh, papacy. It has a lot of stuff that I don't agree with the tone, but it's very good. And you can kind of see like, um, you know, the other day when you were you were blasé saying that I should like write a post-Denzinger for the Vatican, yeah. Vatican II magisterium. Yeah, that first of all, that was gay because uh, you're not going to pay me for it, are you? And no. second, um, which is why you guys should become patrons. This document does this a little bit. If you skim through the references, for example, you'll see that like what this document is doing is it is actually like a summation of how Vatican II has been explained in the, the, the magisterium so far. Um, this section 247 to 249 is very good. Okay. So why why am i saying uh, why am i saying this well first of all it's giving a papal explanation of the gifts and the call of god are irrevocable and um the section of romans 11 that precedes this uh where it talks about how um we are the wild shoots grafted onto the the old roots right and so we don't consider Judaism in principle some kind of foreign religion, and we don't consider the Jews to be idolaters who have been called to turn from idolatry and serve the true God. Why? Why? Because the Jews under discussion, maybe this is a bit of an implausible thing to say, to assume that this is true of all Jews. I would agree with that. That's one of the tone problems that I that I think there is in the post-Vatican II magisterium. But it's speaking of the jews who are not judeis perfidis right it's talking about the jews who actually have faith and attempt to live out the covenant within what has been promulgated to their conscience this is talking about people who have faith hope and charity and are simply invincibly ignorant of some of the articles of faith which would cause them to have to become Catholic and be baptized. Um, and you can see, um, uh, you can see like very clearly, which Christian is highlighting, uh, that's good there, right? It's necessary for us to proclaim uh, Christ as their King, as their God, and as their Messiah, right? It's necessary for us to show them that what they already do these people i'm talking about the faithful ones right what they are already doing points to what we are doing right um and uh this is why there is a complementarity that allows us to read scripture together and help one another to mine the riches of god's word this is nothing new this is what saint Bede venerable said this is what lots of saints have said this is what saint jerome talks about even um, and we have common ethical conditions and a common concern for justice and development of people. I, I, I feel like yeah. with a lot of uh, the, the sort of tone problem you're talking about, mm -hmm. with a lot of these documents, it's kind of it's kind of like the church wants to wants to look nice, but it's also like it, it's it's stating what it is already uh, stated and what is a common teaching in a nice way, and it kind of throws people off. Like, yeah, we're we're we're. <laughs> Like for example, the 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 classical call Protestants separated brethren, and uh, the sort of the, the some some of the statements it makes about Protestantism and Judaism, where it's it's not uh, formally different than what it has been said before, but it just sounds too nice. 
Um, and and I, th I think that I think that can be a problem. Uh, the sort of tone of approach uh, that, mm -hmm. that sometimes we thundering condemnations rather than okay, let's focus on all the good things and focus on uh, the kind of nice uh, friendship things that we have, and not bring up all the messy stuff. Uh, and only like very not sneakily in a bad way, but kind of sneak in the the oh yeah, well actually we, we still need to proclaim Christ as Lord to them. But let let's continue talking about all the all the nice stuff uh, that gets brought up. Uh, I, I don't I don't know how to explain that better, but it's just sort of like um am, amicable ness. Yeah, the problem is that there's a lacuna, right? Yeah. And the lacuna is many of these Jews are not faithful. Right? Yeah. And it's not the same as not being in a state of grace but having dead faith we're talking about the hypocrites who don't even have dead faith but presume upon and and perform to society that they believe in and follow the covenant for other worldly reasons right and and that should remind us too that there are catholics that behave this way that there are catholics who may be effective apostates uh Actually, there's a book by um, Bolivant that where he goes through how the church has actually described the word uh, atheist in such a way as someone could be an atheist and be a visible member of the church, right? And that doesn't mean someone who like propositionally uh, like rejects atheism in their private interior life. Uh, Stephen Bolivant is the author. Uh, it it means it can also mean like someone who. Um, uh, it can also mean like someone who like effectively rejects the existence of God through uh, basically subordinating the virtue of religion to worldly things, right? The error of the of the uh, the Jews and the golden calf, right? So yeah. <clears throat> also, did, you know the thing we talked about recently from De Revelazione. What about it? Do, do you want to go into that? Because that's kind of relevant to this and to the next section that talks about Muslims. Sorry, I was I was uh, I wasn't paying attention. I was looking through the live chat. No, you're you're good. What what did you... I need the bring from De Revelazione? Uh, the thing we talked about the other day. Um, you said uh, the Thomistic teaching on the minor virtual distinction between relations and substance. Oh, oh okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, every kind of Broad, broadly speaking, when it comes to uh, distinctions. So on the one hand, you have uh, what are called uh, re, and on the other hand, you have rationes. Uh, you, have, you have things, and then you have uh, concepts, uh, broadly speaking. And on the, on the third hand, you have names. So if I look at uh, this cup right here and the salt shaker right here, this cup, this salt shaker, they are really distinct. They are two distinct things. Now, on the other hand, if I um, look at this salt shaker, and on the one hand, I call it salt shaker. On the other hand, I call it uh, that which contains salt in order to spread tastiness on my food. That's a nominal distinction. I'm, I'm just going from something which is more or less explicit uh, in, in my naming of the thing. Now, in, in the third part. If we look at Hassan, Hassan right here, uh, he is a rational animal. Now, is Hassan's rationality and Hassan's animality, 
are they two distinct things? Well, no. Uh, it, it's really uh, the relationship between uh, something which is generic and then something which is said to be specific. So Hassan is of the genus animal, and that uh, genus of animals perfected uh, by his uh, rationality. So you can't really separate them into two things. Rather, they are two concepts. They're two rationes. Uh, it's really kind of the, the, the sort of formal aspect of consideration of a certain thing. So Hassan is a certain thing. And I sometimes can draw out the concept of his rationality. Sometimes I can draw out the concept of his animality. And I have what's called uh, between those two, not a mere nominal distinction as I had between salt shaker and uh, that which makes my food tasty. But I have a, uh, a virtual distinction. And it's not, on the other hand, a real distinction because it's not between uh, things. Now, within virtual distinction, uh, we can have, on the one hand, that which is said to be perfectly prescinded and that which is said to be imperfectly prescinded. So these, these are actually very, very important. So Hassan, when I look at him and I look at his rationality on the one hand and his animality on the other hand, his rationality, as we said, perfects his animality. And they actually uh, aren't implicitly contained in, with, uh, in one another. I can think of Hassan's rationality without thinking of Hassan's animality. I can think of Hassan's animality without thinking of his rationality. Because we have things that are just animals, and we have things that are just rationals. They, they, aren't, they don't necessarily include one another. But on the other hand, uh, when we look at other virtual distinctions, such as between the attributes of God, they actually do implicitly and ex implicitly contain one another. When I think of uh, infinite justice, for example, when I think of the the simple uh, subsisting form of justice, uh, necessarily included in that is going to be uh, ipsomestic subsistence. Uh, it's going to be a being which subsists in itself. Uh, it, it, I'm also going to have to think of actus purus. I'm also going to have to think of infinite mercy. Uh, all of God's attributes are contained as implicit and explicit. It would be like, for example, if we think of the relationship between um, if you've ever had one of those crystals and you put a light through it and, it and the rainbow comes out, the relationship yeah. between the white light and the rainbow, while it's while it's different for uh, for a different reason that we don't really need to get into the relationship between the, the the colors of the rainbow and the white light are as implicit and explicit mm -hmm. and it's the same sort of way with uh, god's attributes they're related as implicit and explicit so they're said to be imperfectly prescinded rather than perfectly prescinded i cannot think of uh, one of the colors of the rainbow without thinking of uh, the fact that uh, in its in its uh, perfection in the white light all of the other ones are contained in it. Now, it's slightly different because uh, all of those colors aren't formally, but only virtually contained in the white light. But um, that that's a discussion for a different day. Now, why does this make sense in this question about Jews and Muslims uh, worshiping the one God? Because the common objection you're going to get is, well, Jews and Muslims, they deny the Trinity. So the Jews and Muslims cannot worship uh, the one God. Well, when it comes to the relationship between the relations, so the paternity, uh, uh, the affiliation, uh, active and passive spiration, um, and then if you want to talk about the notions, you also add a nationability. But when, when you talk about the relationship between the, the, the relations and the essence, there's not a real distinction 
but there is a minor virtual distinction between the uh, relations and then the essence. So what does that mean? That means that when you direct uh, worship towards uh, the first cause, um, how basically the, the sort of nominal distinction of I mean, the nominal distinction, the nominal definition of God, which is held by uh, people who hold the natural theology uh, and, mm -hmm. and direct their worship towards uh, the God of nature, that <clears throat> while explicitly they're directing their worship towards the uh, towards the, the unified and one God implicitly indirecting their worship towards um towards the sort of general uh, we can think of it uh, singular divine nature implicitly they're going to be directing their worship towards uh, not only god as one but god as triune even if they aren't explicitly directing their worship towards him so uh those those who are um those who are faithful and then not culpable uh, through their through their own ignorance are still going to be directing their worship uh, towards God, both in his trinity uh, and in his unity. <clears throat> I want to add one more point here because the question was clarified, right? Yeah. He's asking uh, if they are, we consider them as a broken branch, how could they be a sacred root, right? Well, the answer is this. We're not talking about these people as a group cut off from material union with the church who don't come along with the understanding of the church as she has received from the revelation subsequent to the revelation of the prophets in Christ and in the apostles. The root, the root that we're talking about are those articles of faith that are contained in believing in what was witnessed to by the prophets and believing in them by an essentially supernatural act of ascent of faith to God revealing things like the life of Abraham and the worship of Abraham and the meanings of the Psalms and things like this, right? So, uh, and, and also believing that God has revealing, revealed these particular books, right? And this makes them different from Muslims because they hold to articles of faith that could only be believed on account of God really revealing by the means of certain texts and certain people, right? And so when, it, when, the, text, when the text of Pope Francis here says, their faith is one of the sacred roots of Christian identity, we mean their faith in certain articles of faith which are a secondary perfection of the virtue of faith that even a non-Jew could have, right? Which are prerequisites to and necessary to Catholic faith in articles witnessed to and proposed by the explicit authority of the teaching church. Uh, you want to add to that, Christian? Because I know you've been reading about these concepts more than me. No, I think that's I think that's fine. But there's there's a common objection that's being brought up uh, when it comes to the difference between Old Testament Judaism and Talmudic Judaism, mm. which I think is an absolutely uh, fine distinction uh, to make. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I did take a graduate course um, on Second Temple Judaism and like kill me for this. I think a lot of it. I think a lot of it is bad. But. <laughs> I, I, to, to speak of, 
Talmudic Judaism as as some sort of a unified whole. Right. That, that's not that's not the case. So while, while I think it I think it's perfectly fine to level the critique and, and when it when it comes to as as Hassan has pointed out when it comes to uh, what Pope Francis is saying here. It, he, he isn't speaking about every single individual Jew or even every single group of Jews. Um, so, so yeah, I, I, I think, uh, I, I think there is um, some groups which we can say uh, have, have some sort of genuine uh, continuity uh, that isn't corrupted uh, by the large, uh, uh, the, the, the large swath of issues that, that come from, uh, general what's known as Talmudic Judaism, um, but but yeah, it, it's a it's a very um, diverse tradition. That that's like talking about Protestantism, uh, in in order to illustrate for you guys, like yeah, ninety percent of it is going to be uh, your kind of Baptist grand uh, mother or your charismatic cousin, but there yeah, there is the the two percent of like traditional uh lutheranism or reformed catholicism or or whatever whatever you may have it or anglo-catholicism that that are going to um that are going to consciously try to share um the tradition of the of the catholic church and the um and the authority of the fathers and are are going to hold a lot more in common with us uh, that that's that's just my my point is to be is to be careful when it comes to uh such a label while it is generally correct that there are uh, there are certain exceptions. Um, so I've sent you a document, and I've talked to you about this one before. This is a PBC document. It's not properly magisterial, mm. but it, it it is approbated, right? So it has kind of remote, indirect authority, uh, negative one. Yeah, and uh, and it is a certain explanation of Vatican II and the post-Vatican II magisterium on on the Jews. And their relationship to the new testament and the old testament um if you look at part two the part c the conclusion it contain it, it very briefly explains the continuity and discontinuity that the that the jews have with us it's the sense in which they're a broken branch and a case in the sense in which they have something that we can call the root right of the of the olive shoots that have been grafted onto right mm -hmm. um so one of the things that they say is that, uh, uh, and there are other places where it talks about this as well, but there is a sense of legitimate continuity of um, of like the, the post-Christian Jews and Second Temple Jews. And this is why uh, Nostra Aetate is going to, oh, sorry, the document says in number 22 that, um, there is a there, that there is an actual sense in which there is a uh, like a continuity at least intellectually between um, between like Second Temple Judaism and the and later Judaism. Why? Because although there is rupture, there is like a genuine um, like use of hermeneutics, a certain development of what they believe. But parts of it are transformist evolution, which is the issue, right? That's the issue, but. When we, as Christian said, it's not a monolith. There's various different things. There are some Jews that say Satan is a hypostasis of God. There are Jews that, and that's not like a conspiracy theory. There's a book, um, a dialogue book between uh, Pope Francis when he was Cardinal Jorge Bergoglio and Rabbi Abraham Skorka, 
where when they talk about the devil, the Jew explicitly says, you know, from my perspective, the devil is a hypostasis of God. So it's not some esoteric conspiracy. Um, and, you know, there's lots of different Jews who believe in lots of different things. There are Jews who believe in natural law. There are Jews who deny natural law. There are Jews who believe in divine command theory. There are Jews who deny that God's words and actions are morally infallible. There are Jews who um, there there are Jews who who believe that the Messiah is is spoken of as implicit in every single jot of the Torah. There there are Jews that have said this, like mystic sages. There are Jews that believe in all sorts of different things. And our role, one part of our role, is to is through dialogue with them to point out through the intrinsic problems in their views and in their arguments by which they've made certain developments to help them be a at least somewhat closer to the truth by pointing out how some of their developments are transformist evolution rather than evolution and continuity and if we keep doing this we will smooth over the ability for a lot of jews to convert because when they look at their own texts and beliefs properly they point more clearly to what we believe right so um the text i'm going to link it in the chat so you guys can see it um now that i have the power to post links um uh so basically this document goes through a lot of things about the old testament the new testament it talks about the like post-christian rabbinical and and talmudic tradition and uh basically when you look at the talmud you're not looking at a text which is like monolithic there are different opinions inside of it there are things in there that most orthodox jews from the past would reject uh even at, even before the jewish enlightenment which is called haskalah and there are things in there that um that every that all of them accept and there are things in there that reflect aspects of the oral tradition that we have received right so so this is what needs to be understood we have to be we have to be playing part in a in a correction of these kinds of things um yeah exactly uh they progressives and hasidic are both talmudic and different but i mean even among hasidim there's huge differences and among orthodox jews you have the hasidim and you have the mitnagdim or misnagdim right uh or mitnagid sometimes they call themselves there's 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 these two different groups um, even among orthodox jews and there's more and there's lots of different perspectives within each of these about loads of things, right? They're even more internally fragmented than Islam, right? Which is saying something. So we we've got to understand uh, we've got to understand basically that um, uh, we're dealing we're dealing with a group of people who we need to um, who we need to be part of, like guiding and reading their own texts with them and that there are um you know that there there are many things in their um there are many things in their tradition which are actually useful this is why we have saints who say that it's good to have jews around so we can discuss their religion with them not merely to convert them but because some of their hermeneutical insights are useful right not all of them some of them are really like really rotted like thinking really blasphemous stuff about blessed adam for example that's some of the worst stuff but yeah 
I'll wait for Christian to get back. Uh, I only dragged on because because uh, he disappeared. Yes, as I said, the Talmud, uh, of course it has blasphemous things in there. There are people that, dis but they disagree among themselves and they disagree upon the meanings of these things. So you have, for example, um, you had, uh, you had certain, um, uh, you had certain Jews uh, in Germany who believed that the, um, uh, Yeshua of, or was it Yasu of, of Nazareth, that's referred to in the Targum Onkelos, is actually supposed to be Christ. And then you have Jews in the Middle East who denied it and said, no, it was referring to a Hellenizing pagan. And these were simultaneously held beliefs about what the Talmud is talking about. So it's not, it's not, um, it's not this clear cut. And hey, you know, maybe the text is actually talking about Christ. Maybe that's actually the correct interpretation of the text. That's fine. Then we just say that that part of the text is satanic. But you have to understand that the text is not like a monolith, like someone wrote a satanic book. It's a compilation of opinions. It's like it's like 60, what, 60 volumes? One dude sat down one day and wrote 60 volumes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that's nuts. It's no, it's, yeah. Yeah. yeah I mean, it, it's it's like, it's like speaking of, of like the church fathers. Uh, it, it, or it's like you you bring out your shaft set of um of the Antonicene fathers and then the Nicene and post Nicene fathers. And you're like, okay, yeah, all of this. It's just like the Church Fathers said a bad thing, and it's like Origen saying something. Like, Come on, or like Tertullian saying something. Um, but obviously, uh, yeah. So, um, somebody. Uh, the super chat we finally got to it after talking about the jews for a very long time yeah uh do you ever feel like you have to give implausible explanations to defend the catholic church and do you use occam's razor to your first question i don't i don't think so i don't think yeah. i've ever given because i i think um a training that everybody should have is one in logic and then two how to read a book. Those two very important uh, prerequisites to studying anything, uh, really. So um, we, we have to ask ourselves, when I see arguments against the Catholic Church, what exactly do the arguments prove? Now, on the, on the one hand, we can't have this sort of two quoque uh, argument where we're like, well, actually, you fall under this, too, and blah, blah, blah. I think that's stupid. So we have to just ask ourselves, uh, looking to the argument, first, what does it prove? And then we, have to, then we have to ask ourselves, second, does it prove anything that would disprove the Catholic, uh, the, the Catholic religion? Now, obviously, it never could. Um, St. Thomas uh, talks about this in uh, De Rationes. Uh, um, and he says, well, obviously, uh, no, de rationibus, sorry, de rationibus fide. 
Um, but he, he says, obviously, we, we come to apologetic arguments knowing that nothing could disprove the Catholic faith. So, but but obviously, uh, when it comes to uh, dealing with somebody's argument, we kind of have to have to treat it uh, with, with due uh, seriousness. So first, ask yourself, does this argument actually contradict the Catholic faith? Most of the time, people are just going to miss the mark, and it's not going to be an argument uh, that's going to disprove the Catholic faith. It, this, it happens really all the time. I see it all the time. You just have to ask yourself, okay, Pope Francis did bad thing. That, that's usually like the, the classic argument. Okay, well, does Pope Francis doing bad thing, does that disprove the Catholic faith? Well, no, but I mean, it, it, it's a bad thing. Okay, that, 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 doesn't, that doesn't formally contradict uh, any of the claims of the Roman Catholic Church. Okay, now, second, let's say you have a, a conclusion that does go against something that, uh, that would disprove the Roman Catholic Church. Okay, now we're having fun here. So ask them to spell out the premises of their argument, because at this point, at this point, you do need to uh, disprove of the argument. Okay, so you look at you look at the premises and the conclusion. First, you have to ask yourself about what's called the form of the argument. So if you ask yourself, is it a valid argument? Now, this is going to take some uh, training and logic to see if there's any uh, sort of fallacies. But usually all you have to ask yourself is, is there three terms? So when you look at, uh, let's say, Socrates is a man, man is mortal, Socrates is mortal. There are three terms, Socrates, man, and mortal. Usually most errors you're going to find is they equivocate on one of, uh, one of the terms. So like I said, uh, let's say if I said um, Socrates is a man, men are male and female, men are male and female, male or female, therefore Socrates is male or female. Well, I'm actually equivocating between man. Uh, in, in the major premise and the minor premise. We, sometimes we use man in terms of a male. Sometimes we use man in terms of mankind. Uh, there's many different ways in which we use the term man. So there's an equivocation there. So usually uh, you can resolve the argument by finding an equivocation or some sort of error in form. Now, let's say they have uh, both a conclusion that goes against a Catholic principle and the argument is formally sound. They have a syllogism that works. Okay, now, on the third place, you have to look as to whether the syllogism is materially sound. So something which is materially sound, you have to look at whether the premises are true. So sometimes uh, you may have a premise which is true in one aspect, false in a different aspect. Sometimes you may have ones that are flat out false. Sometimes one of them is true, one of them is false. Sometimes one of them is true in one sense, false in the other sense. And then the minor premise is true in the opposite sense, false in the opposite sense. And you have to do something called contradistinguishing, uh, but that's kind of a, a little bit more advanced. So you have to look at whether they're saying in these premises are true. And sometimes they will assume one of the premises that you don't assume. So then you have to ask them for uh, to defend one of the premises and, and so on. But really, these th those three steps are going to be how you refute any argument. You have to ask yourself whether the conclusion formally contradicts my position. Then you have to ask whether the form is valid, that is, whether they're committing any logical fallacies. Then you have to ask yourself whether the matter is valid, that is, whether all of their premises are true. 
And then you usually the first step you're going to get it. Sometimes they make it to the second step. It's very it's very rare that you're going to have to be even asking yourselves whether their the premises are valid because usually they just make a garbage argument. So yeah, that that is that is Wagner's rules for uh, ex explaining to defend the Catholic Church, and, and, and I, I don't think a lot of this is even really hard. Um, most most of the time, apologists just make it difficult by saying dumb things. Um, That's it, usually the, the problem. I wanna. I'm wondering, like, what uh, from Yamsha's perspective, like, what does he even think uh, would be things that we would um you know, have to give him plausible explanations for what are the I'm things it's like want? Pachamama. Yeah. I mean, if it's Pachamama and like moral issue, modern, like moral confusions and things like that, these are just, uh, frankly, they're silly because they don't, they don't actually have anything to do with the claims that the church makes about herself in the first place. And, and then secondly, like when you actually look into these things and not just on the surface level of like it being scandalous to millions of people, right? It's, it just, it, first of all, it's never been claimed that like the authority of the church could never scandalize people, right? And second, when you look into the actual issue itself, sure, it's scandalous, but it's not what people are claiming it is. It's not what the people who are scandalized think it is. So, and, that, and that's the case for almost all of these individual matters. Okay, Dwight Schrute uh, sent a super... Oh, yeah, and then, oh, we forgot the question about the Occam's Razor. So do do I use Occam's Razor? Um, I, I've never really thought about it, but I don't think that's a... Uh, I, don't, I don't think that's a... Um, solid principle for theologians to use i mean i i think it i think it's a solid principle um for uh, those engaging in uh physical sciences rather than metaphysical sciences but i only engage in metaphysical sciences um, such as philosophy and theology so i don't really uh think occam's razor uh which is uh about the simplest explanation simplest explanation will work I don't know if you're doing police work or if you're uh, a physicist or if you're a biologist or if you're a anthropologist or uh, whatever. I, I think that's I think that's a valid principle that that should be your first uh, option. Um, obviously, consequent uh, upon uh, differing uh, explanations uh, with more evidence. Uh, but but I don't know why anybody would use that as a theological principle. I, I don't think we really even work with probabilities, theological principles. What's wrong, Hassan? No. Uh, some of the people in the live chat are just like meme people. You need to stop themselves. That's all. Oh, no. Are you about to go? No, I'm not going to say anything. Okay. Okay. Okay, so... Smoking is cool, actually. So true. So true. So true. It's so true. It's so true. You know, uh, you know what's cool? Not having unnecessary material attachments. Uh, that is also cool. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but you, you know, actually, I, I think, I think smoking is one of those uh, better material attachments. And it's because smoking actually no 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 no. Let me explain. Let me explain. 
So you can have like a material attachment, let's say, to, to chant, liturgical chant. It's absolutely true. Uh, to where it might be uh, might be more prudent for uh, you and your spiritual life uh, to do penance by only having, uh, let's say, a plain, a very plain sort of chant, a rectotono, or uh, maybe maybe spoken. Uh, so so chant can be can be one of those things. But uh, we, on the other hand, we say, well, chant can can aid in one's contemplation of the truth. Yeah. In, a, in an analogous manner, smoking actually does aid in both community bonding and then also in the contemplation of the truth. I've never lit up a cigarette that didn't help me contemplate the truth. That's just because you have to actually stop for a couple of minutes and just think. Exactly. It's good. <laughs> oh dear. Oh Lex Lexi opened the door and shook her head at me and left. Yeah, they might not give a deductive argument with premises though. It might be uh, inductive. Well you still have to it with an inductive argument, you still have to uh, basically go through the same pro uh, same process of drawing your conclusion uh, from premises that are just inductive. It just changes the the form of the the form of the judgment rather than changing the form of the the premise. And plus, I mean, who who uh, who like gets their religious beliefs debunked like this? Like, oh, I saw, I saw a bunch. Oh, sorry, Mike. Sorry, everybody's ears. I saw a bunch of bad stuff. Therefore, debunked. No, it's it's it's. Uh, I mean, okay. So remember when I told you my conversion story, right? Do you remember mm -hmm. the part where I told you I sat down in that mass where I had a spiritual experience and yeah, like, I, at first I was like, oh, what if these guys? If these guys are correct, then you know I've learned enough to know that something crazy is about to happen. And then this Filipina in a freaking miniskirt sits next to me and smiles sweetly at me. And I'm like, yeah, this religion's fake. <laughs> right? Like, that's that's not, like, rational, but it is, it, like, that's why this sort of scandal is serious, right? Yeah. Because because it's it's not... It's it's not rational to make that conclusion, but it's it's understandable, right? Yeah. It's, it's something that people... I get it. Yeah, yeah, you can get it, right? I don't know what the technical term for this is in, in our in scholastic epistemology, right? Uh, but it like it makes sense that somebody would see something like this and be put off and not want to look further, right? Yeah. Yeah. Beatifications aren't infallible. No, they aren't. But I think they're they're safe though. Yeah. Yeah. So something like uh, St. Simon of Trent, who is actually a blessed for the whole church. Don't cancel me, please. Um, oh, yeah. Dwight Schrute. He had his super chat. Boys, Church of England is going to collapse. Let's pray for those who want to leave and come join the ordinary. It's so true. Yeah, come join the ordinary and then stop praying the liturgy of hours and going to the Novus Ordo anyway. 
Hey, stop. <laughs> stop. Uh, you know, it's it's because the nearest ordinary to me is very far away. Yeah, many such cases. Yeah, and the in the Latin liturgy of the hours is pretty good. It's pretty it is it's pretty good. What, yeah, if, what if there was I, a Latin translation of the of the Anglican ordinariate? Uh, I would probably I would I would just use the Anglican ordinariate. I mean, there's a lat there's a Latin translation to the Book of Common Prayer. Um, so I mean, I I think even the 1928 has a Latin translation. So I mean, I could just use that, but it's like, nah, I I, I hate I hate this sort of like lit liturgical obsession with novelty that a lot of people have, where it's like. Oh, I can I can use that sort of. Uh, it, I mean, Saint Saint John of the Cross talks about it in Dark Knight of the Soul, where it's like somebody goes from like new crucifix to new crucifix, new rosary to new rosary, new devotion to new devotion, all because of they 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 like the sort of novelty and uh, sort of feels that they get. Uh, yeah, from. bro, Instagram paraphernalia photographs uh, type Catholicism. Yes, exactly. I, I think there's a huge, yeah. huge problem with this. And in, in, yeah, uh, broad. social media has made this way easier of a tendency to fall into. Yeah. And then and then St. John of the Cross is like, I knew an old man who had like two sticks tied together for a cross and had like an old, an old like bracelet rope thing for a rosary. And he was much holier than any of you. <laughs> and it was like, yeah. so true, King. So true. Yeah, and, and you get the people that just they're they're, they're really just uh, collectors of religious paraphernalia than they are um, actually devoted to the to the usage of anything that they get. It's a it's a huge problem, um, and it's kind of crazy that that Saint John of the Cross was dealing with this sort of thing in his own day when I'm sure it wasn't easy to get. Like for us, I mean, it's just like. Mm -hmm. An, an hour, what an hour's wages, and uh, an internet click away from getting whatever, you, basically whatever you want when it comes to uh, religious stuff. I mean, back then it would have would have taken serious time and money in order to get stuff like that. Hmm. That's that's why that's why I think it's so important um, the sort of focus uh, to have this focus on questioning the material attachments that may be unhealthy that we form in uh, religious practice. That just because it's religious practice does not stop you from having unhealthy uh, attachments. And and a lot of people think that it does. They think, well, I've, I'm, I'm sort of enjoying this uh, sensitive, uh, sensually, but it has to do with, it has to do with religion. So it's fine. Yeah. Like I, I've, I've bought all of these uh, different trinkets and things and, and I'm doing all of these new things and I'm, and I'm listening to this or to that, that gives me some sort of enjoyment, but it's fine because it's, it's religious, but it is, it is completely possible to become overly attached uh, to sort of material. Um, uh, and I mean, why, why wouldn't, why wouldn't uh, Satan uh, use uh, these these sort of objects of religious devotion uh, against us. Why why wouldn't he uh, do that? It's perfectly plausible that he would, and it, it makes sense. So I think there is some sort of advantage, um, and this is this is spoken of by our saints to a, a sort of carefulness uh, when it comes to 
the the type of um, outward expression that is brought about in our religion that you you hear it all the time um, and this is something I actually first heard uh, in the SSPX and apparently this is this is sort of a traditional sentence that that predates Vatican II but they say as you get older and as you get more mature in the spiritual life you begin to enjoy the low mass more than you enjoy the pontifical mass and that's to mean that really all you you care about in in the in the religious life is the possession of god himself and a lot of times all of the extras can become more distracting than they are helpful and i mean call me call me an iconoclast uh for this but it sure as heck does seem like a lot of a lot of people suffer from this and i definitely see this suffering in my own self and and i think it's important uh to talk about it and um, yeah, call me call me an iconoclast, call me a Calvinist, whatever, whatever, whatever you want to say against me. It's in our own tradition uh, to speak in this way. That this uh, and and I mean there 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 is it, that's really what what a lot of people know us know us for is they're like oh they have the beautiful churches and the beautiful altars and the beautiful paintings, and the beautiful uh, devotions and the things, but those things absolutely uh, can become spiritually harmful. And our saints talk about this. St. John of the Cross talks about this. Uh, uh, Domingo Banez was rebuked for this, actually. Um, uh, and, and plenty of other saints. Um, uh, Obscura one time sent me a bunch of uh, quotes from mystics when it, come, when it came to their speaking against uh, using chant in their offices sometimes. Because even the, the sort of pleasure that one gets uh, from the, the beauty of chant can impede one's union with God. I think we have to be a lot more careful with how we with how we approach these things, um, and and ought not to just become as non-Protestant as we can when it comes exactly. to iconography. It's like, oh, the the Protestants are the ones who think that uh, these sort of material attachments and worship can become dangerous. Like, no, this is this is our own tradition. Uh, the 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 Protestants are disordered. Uh, when it comes to uh, their condemnation of all, at least traditionally of all, um, obviously outside of the Lutheran uh, tradition, which has had quite some respect for it. But I'm talking specifically about the Reformed tradition, which most are speaking of in this case. It's, but yeah, it's, we, we can't be, we can't, we can't just be o overly zealous for material attachments. This is one of the huge problems in Renaissance post-Tridentine, uh, like Baroque Christian mm -hmm. art was that there was this huge attempt to be like, okay, these guys don't like a uh, depiction of, of beauty in a natural way. So let's overload all the senses and completely change our liturgical and mystical theology. So now actually the prettier, the better period, right? Mm. Uh, there's, there's a huge problem with this. And uh, people forget that even St. Ignatius of Loyola echoed augustine's and the eastern fathers warnings and the eastern the early eastern mystics warnings about in the prayer right he mm -hmm. himself who was like the pioneer of modern catholic and majestic prayer said do this with uh do this with caution and a supervisor and don't use images and contemplations that are not pre-approved and don't add bits into your visualizations that are completely foreign to what is written. 
in what you are you've been told to, to to contemplate and that's why you need you need a supervisor this is one of the dangers with uh for example a lot of people don't know how to pray the rosary um and so uh when they think about the when they think about the when they think about the mysteries they sit there and they just visualize images right they just visualize images of the mysteries if you are this is not necessarily wrong if you're somebody who's quite advanced you can do this without any danger right uh but if you're a beginner you're robbing yourself of actually filling those images with conceptual data you're robbing yourself of actually doing what is properly called the consideratio of the mystery and its various aspects how the the, the mystical parallels make it have something to do with your own justification your own potential future glory your own life with christ thus far and going forward your own state in the here and now your own relationship to the church right you you lose the ability to consider these things because you're not really doing uh meditation right so so uh and in the same way um I said this to you before, Christian. You remember Annus Quiunc by Benedict Fourteenth? Um. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yes, yes, yes. I have. Uh, yeah. It has to do with instruments. Yes. Yeah. Even in, in the papal chapel, there wasn't um, instruments right. until very late. Yeah. And polyphony as well. He mm -hmm. talks about polyphony, instruments, and the sort of like the the tea loss of the of the musical dressing of the liturgical text mm -hmm. right uh he quotes augustine from book nine of the confessions and it says the great father himself attests of himself that when he would hear the sweet singing of hymns in church he usually was poured out in tears he says how i wept in thy hymns and canticles fiercely moved by the voices of thy sweetly sounding church those voices streamed into mine ears, and thy truth flowed clearly in mine heart, and out of it was enkindled thenceforth the affection of devotion, and tears overflowed, and it was well unto me with these. But when such a great pleasure, which he experienced in hearing ecclesiastical hymns, had fallen in him as into scrupulousness, and therefore by some severity of habits and fear of the displeasure of God, that chant with which that sensible delight was created within him, he would judge to be deserving of disapproval. Afterwards, having better weighed up this matter, he changed his declaration. His mind was not moved by the singing alone, but by the words joined to the singing, as he himself manifestly declares in Book 10 of the Confessions. Chapter 33. Augustine therefore wept with the most tender sense of devotion when he heard in churches the singing of sacred things, excellently hearing and understanding the words, which were being borne forth with the singing. He would perhaps weep even at this time if he heard the polyphonic singing of, singing of some churches, not with the sense of devotion, but of sorrow. <laughs> he, would, he would perceive the singing, but would not understand the words. You see the issue? Yeah, I yeah. absolutely see the issue. I, I, I mean, I, it's a, it's a huge, it's a huge, huge problem, and it's, and it's, and it's hard to. It's kind of it's it's very difficult to talk to a lot of these people because a lot of them, um, and I mean like I'm sure we all fall into this uh, into this trap, but a lot of them it, it's like oh I went to I went to a Latin mass once and I was a Protestant, and I'd never seen such beauty in my life, 
and therefore I converted to the Catholic Church. And it's like, okay, the the on the one hand that that's great that you converted to the Catholic Church, but on the other hand, aesthetics are not a a, a formal motive for the ascent of faith. It it just isn't. I I mean, it can make it easier. It can come alongside of it. But really, uh, you have to be very careful about how uh, you're relating piety uh, to beauty in that beauty is is itself the handmaid of piety and not her mistress. You you have to be very careful uh, about that. Very, very careful. But uh, I I think we've smashed people over the head uh, a lot, a little bit about this because somebody asked a question um chrysostom in homily 33 on acts says a heathen should restrict himself to scripture when deciding which christian denomination to follow without inquiring into arguments isn't this sola scriptura no it isn't let's so i actually yeah i have i have the text pulled up we talked about it this very question yesterday right mm -hmm, we did but so so before we even start we have to, uh, on the one hand, be very clear about what Sola Scriptura is. And on the other hand, be very clear about Chrysostom's application uh, here. So, one hand, what is Sola Scriptura? Sola Scriptura, basically, is that the sole infallible rule of faith is Scripture. Sole infallible rule of faith is Scripture that um, it, it, it's not really uh, just having a high view of Scripture. Catholics, of course, have a high view of Scripture. It's not saying that Scripture is uh, sufficient. Catholics can say that Scripture is sufficient. It's not saying those things. It's, it's, not, it's not even saying that, uh, that Scripture is the, uh, is the sole channel of revelation. It's not, it's not saying that because Protestants would happily say that um, the, the words of the apostles uh, were, were revelation. It's merely saying when it comes to the, uh, the infallible judging of doctrine, that the church does not infallibly judge doctrine, and that the words of tradition cannot infallibly judge doctrine. That's, that's really uh, all that it's saying. So you can see right off the bat, uh, before we even get into uh, homily 33, which I have, again, pulled up, we can see the issue right away. Chrysostom is not at all talking about anything that would be related to Sola Scriptura. I, I've given this advice to, to friends is, hey, look at look at Scripture. Go to Scripture. Look at what Scripture says. It's very easy. Look at look at what Scripture says. And here are the various blind spots that you may have from some of the ways you've been told to read this or that part of Scripture. Um, do I believe in Sola Scriptura? Of course I don't. Of course I don't. And uh, you, you, you get this type of language that, that is used, or at least classically uh, by apologists. But I think it, it really does come, come from a messed up at, uh, apologetic methodology uh, that occurs within uh, some Catholic apolo uh, apologists. 
But yeah, that that broadly speaking, we just need to be very clear about what Chris Austin is saying and what Sola Scripture is saying. And off the bat, you should see that um, telling, gi giving somebody advice on uh, inquiring into uh, Revelation is uh, is not the same thing uh, as uh, the basis of uh, doctrinal authority. So, any any uh, initial thoughts before we get into uh, the, the text from Chrysostom. Um, well, I want to I want to quickly affirm what we said yesterday, which was that uh, effectively uh, this is played out methodologically by Augustine and Cyprian, and to some extent by Saint uh, Vincent of Florence in the Commonitorium. Um, one of the things that you should uh, one of the things that you should consider is that uh, Chrysostom is going to argue here. Just preemptively he's going to argue that um the fact that you're already trying to figure out which christian denomination is true means that you understand that the scriptures are revealed like there is a church but you just want to find her like who are the people really united to her who have her mind and her judgment as saint paul would say right how, how do you do that well saint augustine says well let's look in scripture let's look at the plain things in scripture not the spiritual meanings but let's look at the plain prophecies of the church in the old testament and let's look in the new testament of how the church is described and the promises that are made about her once we put all that together then we can ask okay that's what i found in the book now outside the pages where is what i just saw described where is that actually and that's what what chrysostom is going to argue here too mm -hmm. uh the very same thing as saint augustine does I would seriously recommend Yamcha reading uh, Augustine's On the Unity of the Church in Latin, De Unitate Ecclesia. Uh, uh, I'll put the name in the in the server. Uh, I think I think this is actually a classic principle that yeah. is is said by uh, Saint Thomas Aquinas when dealing with apologetic situations. Is if I if I go to an atheist and want to talk about uh, the the Catholic faith, I would base myself uh, principally upon something we share, which is reason. Does that make me a rationalist? No. If I wanted to go to a Jew and uh, show them the truth of the Catholic faith from the Old Testament scriptures, which we share, would that make me a denier of the new covenant? No. If I wanted to go to a Protestant, I would go to the books that we share to show them the truth of the Catholic faith from the scriptures. Does that make me a... Uh, a, a denier of tradition no if i wanted to go to an orthodox and i wanted to uh debate with them on the truth of the catholic faith from the uh first millennium does that make me a uh, a firmer of the oriental schism no of course it doesn't so i i, I think when once you um it, what you're getting here is you're getting uh on account of heretics some of the first words when you debate heretics saint thomas explicitly says this when you debate heretics you show them either from the articles, uh, arguing from the articles they accept to others. Uh, this is in the first question of Summa Theologiae, and it's also in the beginning of Summa Contra Gentiles, where he talks about this. Either all argue from one article of faith to another, or you argue from the uh, the shared points of revelation that you have, the, the books that you share. Uh, you can argue for um, these these various practices. So uh, I, I think I think this just comes from. Uh, uh, bad choices in apologetic methodology, but let's uh, let's get into it. So, let us not then be offended on account of heretics. For look, here at the very outset of the preaching, how many offenses there were. 
I speak not of those which arose from them that were without, for these were nothing, but of the offenses which were within. For instance, first Ananias, then the murmuring, then uh, Simon the sorcerer, Simon Magnus. Afterwards, they that accused Peter on account of Cornelius. Next, the famine. Lastly, this very thing, the chief of the evils. For indeed, it is impossible when any good thing has taken place, that some evil should not also subsist along with it. Let us not then be disrupted, if certain are offended. But let us thank God even for this, because it makes us more approved. For not tribulations only, but even temptations also render us more illustrious. A man is no such great lover of the truth, only for holding to it, when there is none to lead him astray from it. To hold fast to the truth, then many are drawing him away. This makes the proved man. What then? Is this why offenses come? I'm not speaking as if God were the author of them. God forbid. But I mean that even out of their wickedness, he works good to us. It was never his wish that they should arise. Grant them, he says, that they may be one. But since offenses do come, they are not hurt. They are no hurt to these, but even a benefit. Just as the persecutors unwillingly benefit the martyrs by dragging them to martyrdom and yet they are not driven to this by god just so it is here let us not look only at this that men are offended this very thing is itself a proof of the excellence of the doctrine that many uh, stimulate and counterfeit it for it would not be so if it were not good and this i will now show and make on all hands plain to you of perfumes, the fragrant, spi fragrant spices, are they which people adulterate and counterfeit, as, for instance, the amomum leaf. For because these are rare and of necessary use, therefore they there comes to be spurious imitators likewise. So he's talking about, like, Nikes are good shoes, therefore there's fake Nikes, just in case you're wondering. Uh, nobody would care to counterfeit any common article. The pure life gets many a false pretender to it. No man would care to counterfeit the man of vicious life, no, but the man of monastic life. What then shall we say to the heathen? There comes a heathen and says, I wish to become a Christian, but I know not whom to join. There's much fighting and faction amongst you, much confusion. Which doctrine am I to choose? How shall we answer him? Each of you says he asserts, I speak the truth. No doubt. This is in our favor. For if we told you to be persuaded by arguments, you might well be perplexed. But if we bid you to believe the scriptures, and these are simple and true, the decision is easy for you. If you, uh, if any agree with the scriptures, he is the Christian. If any fight against them, he is far from the rule. But which am I to believe, knowing that as I do nothing at all of the, if I uh, do nothing at, at all of the scriptures, the others also allege the same thing for themselves. What then if the other come and say that the scripture has this, and you that it has something different? And you interpret the scriptures diversely, dragging their sense each his own way. And you then, I ask, have you no understanding, no judgment? And how should I be able to decide, says he? I who do not even know how to judge of your doctrines. I wish to become a learner, and you are making me immediately a teacher. If he says this, what, say you, are we to answer him? How shall we persuade him? Let us ask uh, whether all this be not mere pretense and subterfuge. Sub, subterfuge. Let us ask uh, whether he has deceived against the, decided against the heathens that they are wrong. The fact he will assuredly affirm, 
for of course, if he had not so decided, he would not have come to inquire about our matters. Let us ask the grounds on which he has decided, for to be sure he has not settled the matter out of hand. Clearly, he will say, because their gods are creatures and are not the uncreated God. Good. If then he find this to be our parties, but amongst us the contrary, what argument need we? We all confess that Christ is God, but let us see who fight against this truth and who not. Now we, affirming him to be God, speak of him things worthy of God, that he has power, that he is not a slave, that he is free, that he does of himself, whereas uh, the others say the reverse. Again, I ask, if you would learn to be a physician, so and yet among them many different doctrines, for if you accept uh, without more to do, just what you are told. This is not acting like a man. <laughs> this is not acting like a man. So true. But if you have judgment and sense, you shall assuredly know what is good. We affirm the Son to be God. We verily what we affirm. But they affirm indeed, but in fact confess not. But to mention something even plainer, those each per, uh, those have certain persons from whom they are called, openly showing the name of the Hesiarch himself, and each heresy in like manner. Huh, being named after a Hesiarch, that's interesting. With us, no man has given us a name, but the faith itself. Hmm, this is interesting. Uh, with us, no man has given us a name, but the faith itself. However, this talk of yours is mere pretense and subterfuge. For answer me, how is it uh, that if you would buy a cloak, though ignorant of the art of weaving, you do not speak such work, words as these? I do not know how to buy. They cheat me. But do all you can to learn. And so whatever else it be that you would buy. But here you speak these words. For at this rate, you will accept nothing at all. For let there be one that has no religious doctrine whatsoever. If he should say that he uh, that you will say about the Christians, there is no such a multitude of men. They have different doctrine. This is a heathen. This is a Jew. The other a Christian. No need to accept any doctrine whatsoever, for they are all at variance with one another. But I am a learner and do not wish to be a judge. Uh, and that, yes, is original to how St. John Chrysostom made fun of them. But if you have yielded so far as to pronounce judgment against one doctrine, this pretext no longer has place for you. For just as you were able to reject the spurious, so here also, having come, you shall be able to prove what is profitable. For he that has not pronounced against any doctrine at all may easily say this. But he that has pronounced against any, though he have chosen none, by going on in the same uh, way, will be able to see what he ought to do. Then let us not make pretexts and excuses. And all will be easy. For to show you that all this is mere excuse, ought me to say, you know what you ought to do and what to leave undone, then why do you not what you ought? Do that, and by right reason seek of God, and he will assuredly reveal to you. Boom. Do that, and by right reason seek of God, and he will assuredly reveal to you. God, it says, is no respecter of persons, but in every nature, nation that feel, fears him and works righteousness is accepted with him. It cannot be that he who hears without prejudice shall not be persuaded. But this is this is actually exactly this is actually kind of scary. This is actually exactly exactly the advice that that um the scholastics give with motives of credibility that Protestants don't give. It's kind of crazy. They they say seek the motives of credibility and in all simplicity seek after God and uh his true revelation 
and uh, upon being convinced, follow after uh, what your conscience binds you to do. That's it's literally what they say. Uh, it's kind of kind of crazy that this is coming exact exactly what Saint John Chrysostom is saying right here. Exactly. So continuing, for just as if there were a rule by which everything behooves to be put straight, it would not need much consideration. But it would be easy to detect the person who measures falsely. So it is here. Then how is it they do not see it at a glance? Oh, this this is the other. This oh my, this is actually kind of funny how how uh, Saint John Chrysostom is debunking um, the the like the modern Catholic answer sort of approach. Well, if uh, if Scripture's so clear, why don't why don't everybody uh, uh, agree on the same teaching of Scripture? Let's see. Many things are the cause of this, both preconceived opinion and human causes. The others say you say the same thing about us. How? For are we separated from the church? Have we our hesiarchs? Hmm. Interesting. Have we separated from the church? Have we our hesiarchs? Hassan, have we separated from the church? Have we our hesiarchs? Wasn't I, uh, I recently was awarded with the rare insult of being accused of being an anti-pope, so maybe. <laughs> This is this is interesting. It seems like it seems like there's a lot more going on with Saint John Chrysostom here. He's talking. He, he's yeah. giving actually the traditional note of the the naming of Catholic versus the naming after uh, something else. Uh, he says mm -hmm. that above, which is something Augustine talks about. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, he's also talking about the the sign of schism, the sign of having a hesiarch, which arises and changes uh, that which is taught. This is really interesting. Are we called after men? As one of them has Marcion, another uh, Manichae, a third Arius for their author and leader of this sect. Really interesting. The naming of Catholic as the traditional mark. Hmm. Whereas if we likewise do receive an appellation from any man, we do not take them that have been the authors of some heresy, but men that presided over us and governed the church. Interesting. Seems like there's there's a lot more going on right here. There's a lot more going on. We have no masters upon earth, God forbid. We have one master that is in heaven. And those also says he say the same. Uh, but there stands the name set over them, accusing them and stopping their mouths. How is it there have been many heathen and none of them asked these questions? And among the philosophers, there were these differences. And yet none of them holding the right party was hindered thereby. Why do not these believers say, when the others raise these questions, both these and those Jews, which must we believe? But they believed as they ought. Then let us also obey the laws of God and do all things according to his good pleasure, that having virtuously passed this life uh, present, we may be established therein unto the good things and promise them to love him by the grace and mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ, with whom to the Father and the Holy Ghost together, be glory, dominion, honor, now and forever, world without end. Amen. You literally just need to read. It's literally it's literally the meme, Hassan. Just read. R and R. Yeah, R and R. It's the R and R meme. meme. Yeah, the Boondocks meme. Yeah, literally just read. That, that, that's actually quite. That's that, that's quite in accordance with traditional Catholic uh, methods of apologetics. It's very in accordance with. It. It's actually scary. I actually didn't expect it to be um, that that much like it. 
This is one of the famous traditional loci for our position, which is why it's really annoying when, when Protestants cite it to prove Sola Scriptura. <laughs> Literally just read the paragraph. That's what, that's what annoys me, is a lot of these issues with um, with patristic uh, anomalies. Literally, if, if you just did a, uh, a division of the text, you could easily you could easily solve the anomalies. It's like okay, what is what is the general purpose of the of the entirety of the text? How do the parts fit into that general purpose? How do the individual uh, propositions, arguments, and paragraphs fit together into this uh, general purpose? And you see, like, no, th this is th this is actually extremely Catholic. In what sense is Scripture sufficient? Um, it, it depends on who you ask. Depends on who you ask. Um, but in, in an apologetic situation, is scripture sufficient for demonstrating, uh, the divine, um, the, the divine nature of the Catholic church? Absolutely. Absolutely. It is. And our authors, uh, really have demonstrated this in their writings. But, uh, when it comes to the, the life of the, of the Catholic scripture, um, is divine revelation. Everybody agrees upon that. And uh, the church is the is the proximate rule of faith. So generally speaking, uh, the way in which you're going to uh, learn, uh, learn the faith is going to yes, scripture is going to going to take that place. But the the church is going to be the ordinary uh, means of the teaching of the world. And this is, I think, a relatively obvious um, thing. So is scripture uh, sufficient um, for for teaching everybody? No, uh, no, it isn't. Um, it isn't it isn't sufficient just to really go around and hand people Bibles and just say, OK, uh, here, here you go. So it, 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 the, the church would not be fulfilling her mission if she exercised her magisterium by handing everybody a Bible. Um, that, that's that's not that's not even necessarily the um, the the role of uh, it's it's very I think it's very clear in the in the New Testament that that's not the role of the apostles is to uh, just kind of leave behind these books and to and to uh, go. You are to attend to the public reading of Scripture, Timothy. But you are also supposed to uh, exhort in all good doctrine. Uh, though those those ought not to be uh, set in opposition to one another. Now, uh, does the scriptures sufficiently contain all revelation, either virtually or um, explicitly? I think so, um, but I don't. I don't know if Hassan. I, I don't think Hassan and I have ever spoken about this. But I don't no, know. we just I, articulate it a little bit differently. Like I, I, I think. Um, I think it's relatively clear that this language of the sufficiency of scripture uh, is something which is uh, taught by most medieval theologians. But it's just uh, how, how we're gonna how we're gonna parse it out. Um, the way uh, that I would explain this with a brief analogy would be, <clears throat> you know, when you see an object in the distance, right? St. Thomas deals with this in his commentary on physics, right? Uh, when you see an object in the distance, you know that it's a material thing. And the reason you know it's a material thing is fundamentally because it has dimensive qualities in a location. Mm -hmm. But everything else about it is obscure at first, right? 
-hmm. Now, when you come across scripture and you come to believe that this is real and that its recipient is the believers, right? At that point, then you're like, okay, so I can see the church in the distance, right? And there are other contenders, as Chrysostom says, imitation perfumes next mm -hmm. to it, right? Now, what are the accidents that inhere in a thing by the demensive qualities? Things like the taste, the color, the, the smell, right? And scripture says, taste the Lord and see he is good. But how do we taste him, right? How do we know which one the church is? Right. So by scripture, merely by having scripture and believing that it is given to the church, but not knowing wh what that is, what this is. Right. Where do we find that? What's the institution? Who is the who who, it, who are the Catholics? Right. That that Chrysostom and Augustine were referred to. It's well, that's that's simple. What does scripture tell us about what the church is supposed to smell and taste like? Now, the smell and taste here are not to do with an intuition. A feeling right although someone can be granted uh, a supernatural grace an ascent right super an essential supernatural ascent to this or that body being the church right that's true um however that being said the primary way you're going to do it is by going into the text hold on a second Debunked, destroyed. Okay, so my oh, he's back. Yeah, yeah. It's gonna be it's gonna be by going into the text that you whereby you've already seen this mobile body, this material thing with its demensive qualities, and finding out, okay, but what's what's the actual one, right? What are the, the accidents that are supposed to inhere in that which identify to me which one is the one, right? And that's 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 the role of scripture. Scripture is sufficient in terms of locating the proximate rule, the church. Scripture is sufficient for citing the church at a distance, right? And then you determine which of these mobile bodies is the church by looking at the the remote rule, which by which you've hold, hold on a second. Yeah, sorry about that. Anyway, you, you get the idea. It's just a like an analogy to our, um, you know, whatever was in whatever is in the mind was in the senses, right? Same idea, but this time, uh, but but applied to how we recognize the church as a real material mobile body. Because this, I think, is really important. Is that the church is a material body? This is why Chrysostom says nobody does this with the philosophers or the various different kinds of heathens. Because everybody knows the church is a material thing. Everybody knows that the, the sacraments and so on identify the church, right? Everyone knows she's a material body, not merely some ideological or merely spiritual thing like in the Old Testament where she was hidden among the Jews and among many others, right? Uh, now her actual identity is materially mediated by the sacraments to the baptized. So that's so that's how that's how she that's how you locate her, and Irenaeus is going to say, 
uh, like there's this Christian hypothesis, right? The overall reality of Christianity, wherein it contained a hierarchy of regula, including scripture, succession, etc., etc. And since these are all interreferential, they all refer to one another, they have to be taken together. Otherwise, you can't take even one of them. And so if you take scripture in its integrity, it will lead you to the Catholic Church. If you're looking in scripture for what it's actually establishing the church is supposed to smell and taste like. And that's that's basically that's basically the idea. That's how scripture is sufficient. Yeah. Okay, so I uh, got a few uh, YouTube member comments. Eastern Orthodox lady so disposed can receive communion because they have the habitual intention necessary to receive the communion. This was taught by pre-Vatican II theologians and manualists. Further, Eastern Orthodox uh, still retain jurisdiction for valid confessions, confirmations, and extreme unction. It is not formally schismatic from Catholic Church, so they may wordly receive. Uh, see Journey, Church of the Incarnate Word, pages 506 to 509. Also, uh, the same place you can find Journey. Uh, uh, also, in the same locus, find the recipient of Extreme uh, Unction, page 135. Oh, are you having your beans and toast? <laughs> oh, it's a sandwich. Oh, I forgot it's not morning for you guys. Oh, so it's a toasted a sandwich. A toasted sandwich. Oh, yeah. Where's my – oh, my, my woman left. Ah, I'm kind of getting hungry for lunch. It's already 11 o'clock here. So, um, so, and then I also have a, a super chat. Oh, just arguing with a said on this topic, uh, said a on this topic on, uh, 1983 code of Canon law, allowing Eastern Orthodox communion. So I come to armed with references. Yeah. I don't, I don't get why, uh, that is, that is very controversial. Um, because it seems like at least from the, the lived history of the church, there has been obvious exceptions made. So obviously it isn't um, something which is uh, per se illicit, you know. I've, I've, I've always found that sometimes history is just a very definitive argument uh, when it comes to uh, uh, untangling some tricky uh, theoretical questions. Okay, so could you answer my question on Lagrange? Got that super chat. Thank you. Dang. We have a lot of, I have like 20 starred questions. <laughs> Sorry, guys. Okay, what was your question on Lagrange? Let me look. Let me look, Jack, Jack Hartwell. Um, mm -hmm. Trying to look for your question. Oh, okay, there you go. How can I benefit from St. John of the Cross and St. Thomas Aquinas like Father Lagrange did without reading the Three Ages? Um, what, what do you mean benefit uh, from them? I'm confused by the by the question. Well, when you read spiritual writing, right, it's hard to know how you're supposed to be interiorly uh, interacting with what's received by the signs of the text, right? Hmm. But like three ages is a really good explanation for what to be doing and what the the goal of these parts of the spiritual life are. So like, he's basically asking, well, obviously father Lagrange didn't have three ages cause he wrote it. 
Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So, like, what general reading practices uh, and, and such? Okay. Okay. Yeah. So, Saint Thomas. This is going to be a bit easier um, to learn to Saint to learn to read Saint Thomas. On the one hand, uh, you just have to learn how to be a good reader. Uh, read Adler's classic work, How to Read a Book. Uh, that should be necessary for all of you to read. Read Adler. Uh, find out how to read a book. Uh, very, very good. Um, on, on a on a broad level. And then specifically, St. Thomas's writings are sacred writings from a doctrine of the, doctor of the church. So it isn't, um, on the one hand, you have to read it like you would um, a normal book. But on the other hand, there's something ad additional to that reading, which is going to be the fact that those signs on the text refer to realities which are extramental and uh, to which you interact with in real life. So you read uh, St. Thomas Aquinas on the Eucharist. Those signs uh, that he puts on the page, which you read and then conceptualize in your intellect, have an extra mental reference to, uh, to something outside of you, something which is real, uh, into something in which you can interact with. Um, so, so it's always important to keep that constantly in front of you. And, and, and sometimes it's really autistic. Uh, when you're reading, you say like, okay, this is real. This is not just me trying to master uh, some sort of uh, a fun discipline thing. Just try to try to like, like you would master, uh, I don't know, um, a foreign language. Uh, that, that's how a lot of people uh, think of scholastic theology is learning a foreign language. Um, just, just learning a certain number of artificial signs uh, to, to repeat back. But no, there, there actually is um, some sort of uh, involvement of the Lex Vivendi uh, that, that's going to flow from the Lex Credendi. That, that the actual belief is going to um, make a difference into your day-to-day -day life. Uh, so, so that has to be constantly kept in mind uh, for, for St. Thomas. And it's most easily um, achieved by a constant focus on mental prayer is is to be make sure you are make sure you are in touch uh, with yourself while you're reading because there's some things you're going to read that are going to be profound and are going to need to be chewed on so when you come across those things make sure you stop and make sure you contemplate make sure you engage in mental prayer uh during those during those periods because that is going to occur and you're going to need to make sure you're sensitive uh, to that in order. And, and, and trust me, uh, when you read like that, uh, when it comes to uh, St. Thomas Aquinas' works, it's going to be uh, much different. Now, on the other hand, St. John of the Cross is a little bit different because St. John of the Cross's works a lot of times are more directly practical or uh, in other works, they're more directly uh, doxological. So when you read practical works, uh, that that give a certain advice uh, when it comes to the spiritual life or a certain um, analysis of uh, certain aspects of the spiritual life, a, a very good practice is to always look for yourself in the page. So uh, when, when, for example, in the beginning of Dark Knight of the Soul, where uh, St. John of the Cross is talking about... Um, the, the seven deadly sins in, in relation to 
the seven spiritual sins or seven spiritual vices that beginners go through. And if you are a beginner, make, make sure you're, you're, and I'm, I'm sure every single person watching this, uh, and I'm sure we're not, we're not having like, uh, some, some Carmelite down the street who is, uh, who is completely illuminated and, and unified to, uh, to Christ mystically is going to be watching, um, the, the militant Thomas Saturday morning stream, but who knows, but make sure you're, you're looking uh, to yourself. Uh, to these specific vices and applying the the specific uh, advice that he gives for overcoming these vices, make sure you're always seeing yourself in the page. There, there's there's this uh, to, to illustrate this point. There's there's this funny uh, tweet that I saw one time. It was from uh, this this. Uh, <laughs> I th her her whole thing is that she's she's a she's a lay Dominican. Uh, it's a it's a woman, uh, basically like your your typical online uh catholic woman she like makes rosaries on her etsy page and like does art that she thinks is super profound and, and, and like in stuff like that you know and it's like very very typical very normy but one time she was reading dark night of the soul and i'm sure she didn't get too far into it but uh she, she was reading dark night of the soul and she came across the section on the vices and um she read something in there and she she completely uh misapplied it but she said, well, the, the Latin mass loving trads suffer uh, from from this defect. And she tweeted about it. She tweeted about saying that other people, uh, another group of people were suffering from one of the defects of one of the seven uh, spiritual deadly sins. It's ironic because St. John of the Cross in that same section talks about one of the vices of beginners being the, the vice of spiritual pride, uh, always making sure you're checking your uh, checking others' progress and, and viewing yourself as better because you, you have some sort of out trinkets that you do better. Maybe, you, maybe you're more zealous about wearing your veil at mass. Maybe you dress better. Uh, maybe you engage in certain devotions that other people's, people don't. St. John of the Cross is making this very clear um, in, this, in this beginning part of the dark night of the soul. And she completely missed a vice that she very obviously suffers from because she was viewing other people in the text and not herself. So when you read St. John of the Cross, the best thing you can do is to put yourself out there, whether it's putting yourself out there for correction or to learn uh, the, the type of um, poetry of the soul that St. John of the Cross is writing about in order to, to, to greater understand your own spiritual affections. That's something which is so great, uh, for example, about St. Augustine's Confessions, is he's showing you how to understand your spiritual uh, affections. It's very difficult sometimes uh, within, within uh, mental prayer or within uh, contemplation to understand uh, kind of how your own affections work. Uh, in relation to God, it's it's very difficult to put it into words. Uh, a lot of times, uh, we we don't have proper uh, uh, spiritual direction, so it's hard to ask uh, others for uh, what these feelings mean, or what this or that means, or uh, what ha what's going on with me. Is there anything wrong with me? Am I doing anything wrong? Am I being falsely attached to this or that? Uh, it's it's very difficult. But Saint John of the Cross is is taking uh, his own soul and spilling it on the page that we may um, we may not only uh, benefit from his advice but also benefit uh, from his example 
So that that's a that's kind of a holistic way uh, of how to read both of these authors. But definitely, 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 if you remember anything, view yourself in the page before you view others in the page. Anything else about that? No, <clears throat> not for me. Okay. Did I get any super chats while I was pontificating? No, I didn't. No, but now the, the scrambling to answer all the questions is beginning. Yeah. Sede, Sede. Oh, you say Sede. This this guy says seed. What the? What the? My wife my wife says seed. I don't know why. Bruh, seed. The sneed of Acanthists, bro. The, the seed of Acanthists. Absolutely. My wife doesn't know anything about set of a contest. She just knows that they're bad. <laughs> Did you know that the papacy is true, but that universal acceptance is not? Real? What? 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 Uh, will you do a series on the Trinity? Um. <laughs> just get Astro to do one. Just host one from Astro. Well, I, I, I feel confident in my in my abilities to produce catechetical material when it comes to the Trinity. It's just on the on the one hand, I have a lot of a lot of eggs in a lot of baskets right now. So I'm really I'm I'm going through the uh, I'm going through De Deo Trino again. Um, I, I'm tutoring somebody on it, and I felt very comfortable actually. Uh, explaining concepts and uh, um, in, in such. So I feel very confident uh, in it. It's just, you know, it's one of those things that it, I'm not sure I'm going to be able to help a lot of you. It's because uh, I know, I know how you're going to use it. And 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 uh, I I feel like it may uh, it may do more harm than it does good uh, for a lot of people. Um. So I'd, I'd have to think about what the best uh, sort of means is. Uh, be, because I know I know the way that most of you are going to approach it is going to be a, a from a direction of apologetics, and that's what I'm scared about. Is is you want to know whether Justin Martyr believed the Trinity, and you don't even know what the Trinity is. That's disturbing. That's very disturbing. You you want to you want to know about the logical problem of the Trinity, but you don't even know about the, anything about the Trinity. It's so how how can I solve these issues for you when when you're not willing um to to put in the effort of getting the basics down before you try to do the advanced uh it, it's a huge problem and I, I don't i don't know exactly how to fix it because I, I feel like if i if i produce anything on it, it it'll be like first video 1500 views second video 50 views <laughs> that 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 sort of thing um be, because you, you want you you really want quick and easy answers that are given in a disordered way then you would rather have a, a sort of systematic overview.
Um, so, so you, you always have to be aware of the the sort of casting pearls before swine uh, sort of problem. So who knows? Um, I'm open to it. Uh, I have a lot of notes about it, and I would be absolutely happy to do it. I think I have um, I've taught enough individuals in a sort of classroom setting because I used to do catechesis um or or in a homiletical setting because i when i was when i was an anglican i used to preach about this um or or in just a one-on-one -on -one setting when i would have people come to ask me I, th I think i i think i have i have it kind of down about how i would like to uh, go into it in in such a way as i would be able to um have the sort of uh the the because on the one hand, you have to have the honest lies of the, of the father. Have you ever heard of the concept of the honest lies? Where you're basically, you're, you're having to appropriate your language so much in order uh, that you know your audience is, is going to receive it in the right way. But it may not be the, the most um, accurate way of putting things. So, so it, really, it really is hard, uh, is, is what I'm trying to say, in a, in a lot of different ways um, to, to produce something that would be good. Uh, because on the one hand, you're going to have the people who are just going to uh, take it wrong in this way and run it wrong in that way. Um, but but yes, uh, all that all that uh, rambling is to say that I would, but I also have reservations about doing it. Uh, what texts of St. John of the Cross are good to read to examine myself? Uh, definitely Dark Knight of the Soul. Definitely. Uh, any particular books uh, for Lent you would recommend? Hmm. That's a good question. You're literally translating one. They can just read them. Oh, yeah. The the Medulla. Yeah. Yes. Exactly. On your website. <clears throat> yes. Although I didn't do today or yesterday. I'm bad. Okay, just do it later then, bro. Yeah, well, actually, what, what I'm kind of doing is I'm kind of trying to make it... I mean, for Lent, I think I'm going to make sure I'm, I'm good every single day to have it out because I'm sure people are going to want to uh, look at it for those days. But uh, kind of what I'm doing now is like, yeah, if I get to it. If not, later when I go to publish it, I'll, I'll kind of fill in the gaps of what I missed. Oh, that's so lame. Yeah, 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 I know. It doesn't take that much effort, bro. They're really short. I know. It's it's like a page and a half. Maybe, maybe, maybe I will just post the... Maybe I'll just site translate them right now. Just kidding. You, you guys would not want to see that horrific uh, <laughs> display. Of... <laughs> yeah, but basically, uh, it, it's pretty... Uh, what, what this does is, for every single day, it takes sections of St. Thomas's works. If you see this, this is the third books of... Third book of sentences, distinction 12, question 11, article 1. This is a commentary on John chapter 13. They're taking sections of St. Thomas's works and uh, putting in here for daily meditations. So on my website, uh, I've been putting them out. Boom. So, yep, if you would, for Lent, I'll be making sure I do them on time, early, so by the time you're planning on doing it that day, it'll be, it'll be out. But, uh, but now I'm being lame, in the words of Hassan, because 
yeah, it's a pretty cool project. Thank you. It is a cool project. Just uh, be nice if you did it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I could just go back later, you know. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm sure. I'm sure by the time of like February 10th next year, like like what you think somebody like two months from now is going to be like, oh man, I wish I could read February 10th's meditation rather than today's. Meditation. No, but but someone someone on February 10th might be waiting for it and be like, hey, I'm kind of depending on this for my. No. Uh, that's that's true. I, I might have I might have caused many little ones to stumble by not doing February tenth. Well, I mean, they can just choose something else, but it's still a little bit annoying. It was was talking with a heretic recently about the mystery of the Trinity, and he was apparently familiar with your channel. You know that that's that's the thing that just kind of, on the one hand, it's like I, I hate this because on the one hand, it's like yeah, I know some of you guys are going to abuse it. But on the other hand, there, there's like actual people. If I if I produce something like that, that would get a lot out of it, and uh, it, it might even um, uh, might even be a very large motive in their conversion to the Catholic faith. So it's kind of like a like a double edged sword in a certain way. Yeah, but I, I, I if I if I ever did um, something like that, I would make sure that. I, I use, I use uh, the method of Saint Thomas and De Rationibus to make sure I, I, I sapientially, uh, Saint uh, Hassan's favorite word that I use, sapientially um, express the concepts of of the revealed data, and then uh, synthetically. Uh, draw conclusions and organize them in an orderly manner because i think honestly that sort of scholasticism for the people approach is the best way of doing it like starting starting out with um with expressing okay there there are processions in god revealed in scripture okay now let's look at what processions are now okay we we have uh, relations in god now let's look at relations are and let's purify these concepts by way of analogy and, and i and i think kind of uncovering that process for people and then once you've reached that height synthetically judging and then going back up to the height and synthetically judging i, I think i think drawing people into contemplation of the mystery by way of looking at things around them and then ascending up sort of the mountain um uh, from which from which they're able to to look down and, and judge all of the particulars uh from the from the universal is so it's it's so fantastic once people start to get it you know it's it's like I, I i wish i just i just wish that people didn't do theology in a in a non-scholastic way it's just so cringe it's like you you can you can actually you know you can actually by way of analogy under gain some sort of understanding by reason uh which is under the influence of uh, of the gift and seeks piously and soberly uh, for some sort of understanding, you you can actually understand this stuff, and it's and it's just so it's so fantastic, and I and I wish I just wish that, um, on the one hand, people stop treating everybody like they're a bunch of idiots, and we have to um, treat them like idiots and kids, basically. Um, and on the other hand, people stopped uh, stop pretending like scholasticism is just for some big brain Latin nerds. Mm -hmm. uh, because and then on on the other hand people stop treating it like it's uh like we need to just do positive theology all day and and i 
Uh, pe- people, this is the annoying part. People would much rather me have like a one hour stream on like the biblical proofs for the Trinity than actually have like a like a one hour stream ex- like explaining to them um, the the analogates for the for the doctrine of uh, of the processions or something like that. Where they'd be able to actually understand, like you guys can actually understand the processions by way of analogy. Like I could actually explain it to you. That's fantastic. Uh, and and you guys would rather have uh, ha- have me just uh, oh let let's just uh, have all of these proof texts that I throw up there and uh, and we can laugh at the Muslims or something. It's just so annoying. Sorry, I I, f- I feel like I'm I feel like I'm rambling. Change your intro into a rant about how people don't watch your videos properly. So true. Okay, so was there was there death before the fall? Okay, um, this is a good question. So when it comes to, uh, are, are you talking about death of animals? You know, you know at so so you know I'm I'm actually going to take this in the autistic direction that I originally read this as rather than actually the question you asked because I feel like talking about this. Um but when it comes to corruptibility corruptibility is an attribute of any composite. So the very fact that man is composed of body and soul we are corruptible and thus mortal by way of nature. Now uh corruptibility isn't an attribute of nature as such there can be some uh beings uh, that are not non-corruptible uh, such as angels and uh it's it's also a, an attribute of possible uh creation therefore it's said to be something which is preternatural uh because it is something which is is possible for created beings but it's not necessarily something which is concomitant with our body soul uh composite so Adam and Eve were given the preternatural uh, gift of supernaturality. This is why we can explain actually why Our Lady died. Is Our Lady didn't die as a as a direct consequence of of original sin. Rather, she died because there was a certain privation of that uh, of that preternatural gift. Because it it is not necessarily like sinful for for man to die if god created man in a state of pure nature and man had never fallen man would still die um he he needs to be given a gift above his individual nature uh, in order to have immortality i yeah i think the errors on this question come from people not knowing that pure nature is like a real hypothetical Mm. I think there's actually an interesting place. St. Thomas has this weird embryological view, uh, as many know, that um, reproduction is entirely controlled by a certain seed power contained in like, the essence of man, which is simply mediated by a liquid, right? And he thinks that the, the woman only contributes matter. And he so believes true. that matter is the menstrual blood, right? So true. And and he thinks that basically, like, the liquid sits there with the menstrual blood for a while, and then eventually, um, like, God causes the seed power to activate, right? And this causes an effect on the matter, and the seed power may act more well, or it may act less well. And if it acts more well, 
the man's seed power succeeds in producing something more like unto himself, a boy. And if it fails, it produces a girl. And so this true. is where the mistake comes from saying a woman is a misbegotten man, uh, where people don't understand what St. Thomas is saying, right? He's not saying, yeah, women are defective men. He's not saying that. He's saying that universe, he actually says universal nature intends this to occur. Mm -hmm. But the individual nature of man intends to produce something like itself. And so it's actually the failure of the seed power rather than a failure of nature, rather than a failure inherent to the thing. A woman is not characterized as being a failed thing, right? But rather there is a failed operation is, is his position, right? Mm -hmm. Okay. Why is this important? Because St. Thomas says that barring the fall, and, if, and, and also Thomas will say that in the state of pure nature, there still would have been generation of offspring. And this necessitates that even without the fall, there would be some kind of error, so to speak, right, in this production of offspring. There would be some kind of uh, uh, not metaphysical, um, obviously a metaphysical evil, but something a bit more than that, right? Like the failure of a certain activity related to a human being. Yeah. And so this itself opens the way for something like mutation for example, occurring in animals before the fall. It doesn't have to be some kind of degradation, right? Especially since all these things are predestined, right? Like any any change in DNA between generations, errors in the copying of the data, which if you know about how, how meiosis works, then, then you'll understand. All of this is down to God's providential will about what will and will not occur. Uh, this is why the the uh, ITC document that talks about um, uh, evolution denies neo-Darwinism on account of the fact that neo-Darwinism holds to uh, the theological error of true randomness. We don't hold to true randomness because nothing occurs except that God causes the joining of a substance to any of its activities, any of its any of its potences being uh, brought into act. Right. So. Um, so, so in the same way as this sort of thing can occur, so can animal death. Um, and uh, this is why like um, any like animal, because it's an animal is by nature corruptible. This is how St. Thomas explains it. So man is by nature corruptible, not as some kind of penalty that is a certain degradation of his very nature. It's not, it's not a degradation of man's nature that it's possible for him to die. Okay, somebody asked a cool question when it came to um, does that contradict Canon 1 of the Council of Carthage? And sorry, guys, you guys have like a trillion questions. I'm not going to get all of them. So I'm just going to pick whichever ones I find the most cool. So, yeah, but I, I just pulled up. It's the I, I had to do some searching because for those who don't know, there's like 20 councils of Carthage in church history. Uh, that's like saying, uh, I don't know, like the Lateran Council. Like, okay, which Lateran Council are you talking about? There's been like a million different Lateran Councils. Uh, but yeah, or, uh, okay. So Canon 1, 418, that whosoever says that Adam, the first man, was created mortal, so that whatever he had sinned or not, he would have died in body, 
Uh, that is, he would have gone forth with the body, not because his sin merited this, but by natural necessity. Let him be anathema. So I think what this text is talking about is this text is saying that he had um, he had the preternatural gift of immortality. I don't think by natural necessity it is talking about uh, nature in the abstractive sense. That is um, the sort of the sort of exigencies of a certain essence as such i don't i don't think it's it's using that language and this is actually an issue i see with protestant authors as well uh when they're trying to understand what we're saying they don't uh they they too often when they're talking about adam think by nature um we're using nature in the compound sense rather than nature in the abstractive sense so nature in the compound sense we'll be talking about nature with all of the all of the the, the gifts that come with it where nature in the abstract sense is going to be talking about uh, the exigencies due to a certain essence as separated from any gifts outside or above it. Uh, so, yeah, uh, I, I think this really just has to do with a, a difference of language. It's not a formal difference. Any thoughts this on? Not really. Okay. We have a super chat. Uh, if there were, A thousand persons. Question makes me want to shoot myself. It does. If there were a thousand persons of God sharing the same essence yet are distinct in virtue of their hypostatic properties, is this polytheism? No. It isn't. But again, uh, but that's impossible. It's so. yeah. It's it's just. A, <laughs> it's it's impossible, but no. I mean, it, it's uh because because relation uh. Relation multiplies the Trinity, but relation does not multiply the nature. There couldn't there couldn't be more than three persons anyway. So Thomas talks about this a little mm -hmm. bit. Yeah, because uh, there's only uh, because a person uh, in the Trinity uh, in the Trinity there can only be a multiplication by a real relation between termini, so between mm. the termus aquo and the termus ad quem, and there's only two faculties that are imminent rather than transient. Uh, in that in, in the imminent faculties are the faculties of the will and the intellect. So you, in, in order to have a thousand persons, you would have to have uh, a lot more imminent faculties. Uh, and, and since the, 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 the fecundity or the fruitfulness of those faculties by the, the procession of a person, by the complete communication of nature is said to be infinitely exhausted in the procession. You can't, uh, this, this is why you don't have, uh, for example, the, uh, by way of intellection, the son uh, being uh, the son proceeding from the father, and then the son, uh, who also has the intellect, just uh, sending forth another son and another son and another son. That doesn't work because in the first procession, uh, by the production of the term, the infinite fecundity of the uh, of the faculty is exhausted. Um, and that's that's the sort of uh, best way of of thinking about it. And then on the other hand, you have the will. the The will is um, communicated to the the son uh, in the in the beginning of the son, and then together the father and the son uh, infinitely exhaust uh, in their love uh, the 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 term of the spirit, and therefore the second imminent faculty is exhausted. So you, so you can't have more than uh, three persons. Okay, so something about the nouvelle. Uh, this is a good question. Uh, so can we say that the nouvelle theology 
uh, is officially condemned by the church? This is this is a tricky question, um, because when you when you say Nouvelle Theology, you, you act like there's some sort of monolith of of the Nouvelle Theology. You have everybody from people that were actually individually condemned by the church identifying as Nouvelle Theology to people that are more or less like popes of the church. <laughs> yes. So you have you have uh, you have very um, you have very wide spectrum of, of thinkers. So it depends on what you mean uh, by the the Nouvelle Theology. If you mean the the methodology of the New Theology, again which interpretation of the methodology of the new theology, some of which are condemned by the church uh, antecedently. And this would be, uh, for example, some uh, which hold that the, uh, the methodology of the, of the scholastics is damaging. Uh, that's going to be some of them, uh, but not the majority uh, for sure. Uh, a lot of them actually quite uh, respected. Um, even uh, some of the, the, the later uh, theologians, the, even the Roman college theologians, I think it's um which one? I think Ronner was like a huge fan of Franzlin or something. It's like a really, really weird connection. I it's like okay, dude, you're you're a fan of Franzlin. I get it. Uh, Franzlin would have punched you in the face, but um, <laughs> you're you're a fan, okay? Uh, so 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 it really uh it, it, some of methodologically uh some of which uh is going to be condemned. Individual positions, um, again depends. Uh, it, it really it really is such a wide um, such a wide scope. I, I, I don't even know if it's it's worth uh, digging through individual thinkers and individual p positions and individual schools and looking to see, okay, is this condemned? Which level is it condemned? Uh, but really, uh, a, a lot of the errors are going to come down um, to something which goes against common teachings of the theologians. Uh, for example, uh, I, I think a wonderful example is von Balthasar and his denial that Christ uh, had the beatific vision, something like that. It's like, yeah, that that's against um, something that's theologically certain. So in that there's so much there's so much weird stuff in some of these guys, but you identify it just by knowing the manuals. Basically, it's really it's really clear sometimes when they're just like, oh yeah, uh, the saints and Christ have faith in heaven because the Trinity isn't only love but also hope and faith. Like. <laughs> Excuse me? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Balthazar's Theology of Perpetual Trinitarian Surprise. Anyway, he, he's got... I, I, I am, I'm perpetually surprised by all of Von Balthazar's errors. Yeah, well, that's, that's the thing. Like, uh, these guys, they've got a lot of good stuff. And you got to understand that whenever you're trying to create a new movement, there's always growing pains. There's always birth pains, right? Yeah. Uh, and that's that's effectively what happened. They didn't know what they were doing, and they forgot a lot of necessary parts of Catholic method. But if you unite the necessities of Catholic method to some of the insights and directions and like ordinations mm -hmm. of Nouvelle the theology, you can do some good stuff with it. And there's been near scholastic theologians who've been doing that. Um, there's some really cool people actually who are trying to do both a resourcement of the manuals and second scholasticism, and they're trying to unite it to questions posed by by Nouvelle Theology. Uh, and I think that's pretty cool. I, I don't think there's a problem with that. The the issue, uh, but you know, like um, Rana isn't like the Ranarians and Balthazar is not like the Balthazarians. They're this, they're, the followers are much worse. than. The oh, the, the, oh my, don't, don't even get me started on this. It's yeah. like, 
the the followers it's it's like Ronner when he was teaching them he dropped them all so to speak on their heads <laughs> it's <laughs> it's like you you have I, I i in my in my article that i wrote for one peter five on manualist and the manualism i'm like you you look at these first generation nouvelle theology and while yes yes i disagreements and everything like that blah 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 blah, blah they were really smart guys they were insane scholars uh, they they did some really impressive stuff. I think a lot of it is, well, not a lot of it, but some of it is is especially wrong, especially some of their distinctives. But they were super smart. They they did some insane scholarship. Uh, you you just look at like I think it was Ronner. He he wrote two encyclopedias. I think it was like von Balthasar had what like five hundred works or something like that. Just nuts. Just the amount of output they had was just crazy. And then you get their followers. Their followers can't even read primary sources. They're idiots. Uh, this isn't a universal condemnation. Uh, obviously, it's just the ones that have interacted with. But it's like, what do you what do you do? It's like, uh, what what what's that Anglican one? Uh, the, the Anglican neo orthodox guy. He said that he had he's like a big dude hating SCOTUS, and he's like, yeah, I haven't read much of the SCOTUS. Oh, version. listen, listen, like you're, like, not, like you're you're the, you're. Are you talking about the radical orthodox guy, Melbank? Yeah, 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 that guy. Listen, Melbank, that guy, Melbank. that guy's. I'm 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 very uh, reluctant to even call him Christian. I don't think we should even talk about him, to be honest. Yeah, yeah, but but Actually, either no. either either way, it's like yeah, come on, guys, like you're you 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 stand you stand in in line with these guys who were just uh scholarly and academically titans uh they they were extremely bright and then you turn out idiots come on like ha have have the same have the same standards as as your forefathers basically like yeah. rana was saying like uh everybody who wants to be a theologian needs to form themselves in at least one manual yeah, yeah, that's what he said. Uh, he actually loved the STS. Mm -hmm. He was a huge fan of the STS. Yeah, but it's like, come on, guys, come on. It's it, be be better than this. Um, but yeah, be better, says Christian. Be, be better, be better. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay. Uh, is that another super chat? No, that was the a thousand person question. Isn't uh, isn't Bishop Barron a uh, a Nouvelle Theology appreciator? Yeah, he he is. Yeah, like again, like that's not necessarily a bad thing, but unfortunately, he takes on some of the stuff that's not great. But yeah. that doesn't like just because Bishop Barron has like a couple of weird things because he didn't learn like method the way that people are supposed to and don't in the institutions anymore. That doesn't mean all of his stuff is bad. It doesn't mean that most of his stuff isn't good. He's got a lot of really good stuff. He's probably, you know, he he's probably like uh, done more salvific work than anybody in this chat put together. Pro probably right. Yeah. He's uh, he's he's been instrumental in evangelization of thousands of people, so you know. Thomas is greater than the Council of Carthage. Okay, so yeah, so let, let me let me explain this to you. On the one hand, yes, actually he is. Just being just being perfectly honest with you, because the the Council of Carthage, Augustine calls it the Council of Africa. 
it's a it's a minor uh, council with a few bishops in North Africa. So actually, the common doctor of the Catholic Church, acclaimed by multiple popes, is greater than them. But on the other hand, they don't agree with they don't disagree with one another. So yeah, exactly. It's, it's not even it's not even a question. Um, but but yeah, uh, yes, actually, he is. Uh, yes, Chad, he is. Um, Christian, ever think about growing a beard, or are you more Latin on the matter? Uh, I I prefer the clean shave. Uh, I'm thinking maybe during Lent, uh, I I won't shave because that would be uh, painful. Isn't the isn't the Council of Carthage part of the ordinary magisterium? Isn't the 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 letters your bishop, you know, the sermons of your bishop, part of the ordinary magisterium? It's yeah, it's part of the ordinary <laughs> bishop, magisterium. Bishop Barron, Bishop Barron's YouTube videos, part of the ordinary magisterium. Yeah, yes, part of the ordinary <laughs> magisterium yes, they are. Of, of the bishops who were involved, yes, and of those who received the text. That's all. In and of itself, it only has the authority of the bishops who actually signed it, and yeah, then I, secondly, it has the authority of its reception, and that's it. This is actually something that kind of annoys me about a lot of these discussions, uh, a lot of the mega nuanced magisterium discussions, is they never discuss the fact that, like, yeah, uh, everything from, like, your bishop's uh, emails to, like, solemn ex-cathedra, uh, right from the chair, wrath of Peter and Paul being called down, everything from that to that is is uh, magisterial. It's like... Uh, oh, you're you're uh, you're you're disputing with the magisterium. Well, I, I guess. I mean, <laughs> it's like a lot of times, all, all magisterium is talking about is the is the teaching function of, of the church. Um, it, it can be anything from your bishop to uh, the pope to an ecumenical council to from a from a provincial council to, to to whatever. There's a lot of different things that are that are magisterial, even. Um, there's something I was talking to Hassan the other day. Even the fathers and scholastics and manualists are magisterial. Uh, so, so it's uh, it's like that. That word kind of has been uh, used in a very weird way in order to just like crush disagreement. But some of the some of the councils, so some of the councils are approved by the popes, which should uh, make them universal. Yeah, uh, for example, what is it? Um, the first council of Constantinople. Yeah. Well, the council of Constantinople uh, was uh, was made to be an ecumenical council, and sure, uh, some some are not officially was, called ecumenical, but they have the same. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, that that canon in the in the council of uh, Carthage. Uh, where, where are you getting that that is uh, something which is uh, this? Yep. Someone, the meaning uh, of the word magisterium is a bit more nuanced. Oh, come on, bro. Yeah, you can have nuance to move mountains. Uh, anyway, so, uh, Christian, somebody, uh, somebody says they've never heard the word theological method before. Do you want to give, like, a brief introduction to what that is? Yes. Give me one second. I just forgot to turn something on. I forgot to turn ads on, so you guys can cry about it. About to get all the stuff with an you ad suck, break. Right dude, you suck. You suck. What? I need to turn my ads on. If I don't do it now, when I remember, I'm gonna forget. Oh my goodness, bro. Dude, what's wrong with it? I get. Yeah, I you gotta hate, make. You gotta I make money it. from ads, bro. I hate them. 
Bro, people are giving you tons of Saudi Arabia money today. I know. I, I've gotten tons of Saudi Arabia money. Okay, so you guys are wondering, what is theological method? Okay. So, when we, when we go out there and approach uh, the church, we approach scripture, we approach tradition. All around us, uh, we, we have certain devotions. We have, we have private uh, revelations, maybe. We have the words of demons. Uh, we, we have a lot of different things surrounding us, which, which are claiming uh, our, our attention uh, when it comes to forming this thing called theology, this sort of organized body of knowledge concerning God. We, we, we are given uh, this and that. We're, we're given a lot of stuff. Uh, we're given even uh, things like philosophy, things like custom and tradition. There, there's, a, there's a lot of different things uh, which are given to us. So the question is, when we approach all of these different uh, sources, what are we to take from them? How are we to put them together? How are we to organize them? What type of uh, what type of uh, uh, arguments are we allowed to make from some of these? Uh, for, uh, if if Fatima, if Our Lady of Fatima tells us something, are we to believe it? Can we use it in a theological argument? What if the Church makes it a feast day? What if the Church doesn't make it a feast day? What if a Pope talks about it? What if a Pope doesn't talk about it? What if your local bishop talks about it? There's there's all of these different sources which are given, and then uh, we have to discern which are authoritative, which are not authoritative, which are less authoritative, which are more authoritative. We have to we have to look at scripture, how we are to read scripture, what are we to get from scripture. And then at this point, at this at this sort of first stage of sifting through all of the source material, we are able to gather um, articles and uh, really broadly speaking, we're able to gather the doctrine of Christ. We have the teaching of, uh, of God, both... Uh, directly and immediately in sacred scripture and then also uh in in a in a different manner uh through through the uh guidance and aid of the holy spirit and the teaching of the church and of certain approved theologians so we have this body of doctrine but that's fine and all we have this body of doctrine out there but it could could i just write down all of these doctrines on a piece of paper and kind of footnote all the places where i got them from and then hand it to you and say okay here read all this read all of these little propositions i have well no of course not that would be almost impossible to read so from these positions of doctrines we need to do two things well we actually do three things actually four things first we need to defend them second we need to analyze them so first uh Okay, I have this objection. I have that objection. What makes it credible? And uh, can you deal with this objection? And on the second hand, what does this mean? You're telling me this uh, thing that um, that Jesus Christ is a divine person. What is what does Jesus Christ mean? What does divine person mean? What do you mean by is? So you have to explain the notions that are present, and then also. How are these going to be organized? Because you're giving me a bunch of lists of things. So how are we organizing all of that doctrine that we have gotten from the from Revelation? And then lastly, what else can we learn? So what what things are contained in those premises? So uh, we know that Jesus Christ is a man. 
Well, we can know a lot of things naturally about what it means to be a man. So we can conclude, therefore, a lot of different things about Jesus Christ from our natural knowledge. So, for example, it is a property, uh, technically something which flows from an essence. It is a property of man to be risible, that is, to have the ability to laugh. Now, Jesus Christ is a man, therefore, we can know that Jesus Christ is risible. So there's a lot of um, a lot of thinking that actually goes into this. So first, how do we find out what Revelation teaches? And then second, how do we organize it? How do we defend it? How do we organize? Uh, how do we draw conclusions from it? How do we explain it? Uh, this is really, uh, in a nutshell, what theological method is. Uh, and then also there, there's other organizational principles uh, to get into, because we also not only uh, need to know what to, uh, what to believe, but also sometimes even more importantly, what do we need to do? Uh, because we we're, uh, we're on, on one hand, we have these uh, principles of natural ethics. So we know uh, basically, yeah, don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal. We, we, we know all these principles uh, naturally and from certain customs which are handed down to us in the teaching of our parents. But also there there's, um, there's teachings that go uh, above and beyond from sacred scripture. We ought to be willing to die for God. We ought to uh, be willing to uh, have uh, chastity, uh, not only outside of and um, and before marriage, but also within marriage. Uh, this is something that the gospel calls us to do. Um, we we need to uh, renounce uh, ourselves. Uh, there there's there's a lot of different obligations and uh, commands which are given to us uh, beyond uh, those which are immediately evident to us. Uh, so how do, how do we also organize this body called moral theology that goes up and beyond the teaching of natural ethics? And then on the uh, and then uh, even further, now we have uh, to think about, OK, what about uh, my growth in the spiritual life? What about uh, what about union with God in the mystical life? What about cases of conscience uh, that that's casuistic theology? So there's a lot of different stuff we need to organize, and we need to work based on solid and approved principles that we're upfront about, uh, where uh, a lot of um, theologians nowadays are not upfront and clear about their principles. They just kind of throw stuff on, on a page, and they kind of just throw it against the wall and, and hope it sticks, and uh, kind of more or less randomly look for authorities and aren't detailed, and um, they, they aren't systematic about what they're doing. So that, in a in a nutshell, is theological method. You're muted, Hassan, if you want to say something. Um, I don't really have anything to add to this, other than to say, if you want to learn more about theological method, you need to read something on De Locis or read something like uh, De Revelazione, uh, or you need to read something from um, from like a manual uh, on like on Revelation and on the church. Uh, but basically, <clears throat> uh, the summary of it is is that uh, there's a set of different loci. There are the monuments of tradition, the scripture, there's magisterial documents, whatever, right? And they have a hierarchy among themselves. And this hierarchy among the various um, uh, like loci is what allows you to um, allows you to come to conclusions. 
uh, in when when basically what gives you epistemic warrant to say that a particular proposition in theology is true? That's what theological method is. Uh, anyway, uh, yeah, that's pretty much it. The bishops these days, even all. Okay, uh, Justin the Catholic. Is the philosophy of being required for Catholic doctrine? Uh, no, actually, you can be Catholic and deny being. <laughs> I think he means like okay. a particular philosophy. I, I'm, 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 I know, I'm joking. I'm joking. Yeah, come on, man. Oh, oh okay, yeah, yeah. Be mature, be mature. Uh, yes, uh, in, in some, uh, the church, uh, there is a... So on the one hand, you have those necessary antecedents to the definitions of Catholic doctrine. Uh, and, and you could look at uh, in the formulations of the church, there's going to be specific, a sort of specific general Aristotel Latin Aristotelianism that's going to be spoken of. And yes, th those are necessary antecedents. Like you can't, uh, for example, deny the existence of matter and form. Uh, you just can't do it because uh, the form is spoken of in defining uh, certain doctrines. You can't deny uh, the existence of substance and accidents because substance and accidents are, are necessary antecedents. And then on the other hand, uh, up and beyond the necessary antecedents for accepting doctrines, there is also that which the church promulgates is true. So the church, uh, there's a certain philosophy, a certain philosophical system, which the church says, okay, this is what we believe is true. But if you understand the difference between, um, on the one hand, uh, you have uh, those things binding on faith, and another thing, hand those which are generally presented as true. So uh, the the church doesn't bind you on faith uh, when it talks about. I don't know well, what's a good, what's a good example of something uh, historical or or such that the church doesn't bind on faith, but just presents it generally as true. Um, the, the, you're you're not anathema if you think uh, that the Second Vatican Council started in 1959 rather than what right. 1962, uh, <laughs> or, or you think it happened in a different building than church documents talk about. You're not like, anathema if you deny that. Yeah, we can go to something a little bit more, uh, something that's actually a proposition. It's proposition to be true by the church, but it's not yeah. proposed to be believed by divine faith in a settled manner. That would be who wrote the. Uh, that's to the Hebrews. There you go. Who wrote the letter to the Hebrews? Mm -hmm. So what, when it when it comes to the uh, specific system that the church uh, will present as being true, that is the the philosophy of Saint Thomas Aquinas. Uh, the, uh, the the church presents it as true uh, with extrinsic authority. Um, mm -hmm. So so yeah, uh, there there's there's two questions there, and we ought not to uh, conflate the two because on the one hand. You can have certain people who think that uh, the church is just generally presenting as true any sort of philosophical system. The church doesn't really care when it comes to philosophical manners. That's actually an error of the modernists. It's a very brutal error of the modernists, too. On the other hand, you can have people that are a little bit overly zealous, and they do view some. Uh, they do view the the philosophy of Saint Thomas Aquinas as being binding upon faith, uh, which is a, a bit ridiculous if you know uh, the nature of the objects of faith. So, yeah, those are the two opposed errors that you need to make sure you uh, you don't uh, fall into. And this distinction uh, preserves the insights of both of the opposed errors. <laughs> One.
What do you mean do? What do you mean you? What do you mean believe? (laughs) (laughs) Unironically, Jordan Peterson has made it super cringy, but the analysis of notions is is very important. Um, Okay, yeah, but Michael, I agree that bodily death is a punishment for sin. And again, I've made it, I've made it uh, very clear, but I mean it in the sense of the loss of the preternatural gifts was brought about by sin, not that uh, death wouldn't uh, have existed uh, if that preternatural gift wasn't given in the first place. Michael, the question on scripture, I think you misunderstood. The alternative view isn't that Hebrews was written after the death of all the apostles. It's that it was written by uh, uh, one of the fellow workers of St. Paul. Is beauty objective because God is objectively beautiful or the other way around? Haha, good question. So um, beauty is beauty is objective. Uh, you, have to, you have to be very careful actually about this. And, and this is why I don't like the... Uh, I don't like the language of objective truth or objective goodness. I actually don't like that language because we have to understand um, that truth, beauty, and goodness are being in a certain transcendental relationship with a subject. So, so in a certain sense, we actually uh, can say with the nominalists, and, and this is why I think the nominalists were unjustly persecuted um, and condemned in later literature. We can say with the nominalists that that truth, or St. Thomas directly says, truth resides in the intellect. Beauty resides in the intellect. Oh, beauty resides in kind of a combination between the intellect and the will. And goodness resides in the will. We, we can absolutely say that. Um, and uh, be, because there is a transcendental relationship uh, between being and a certain subject, rather than it merely existing out there in the world. I can't touch truth. I can't touch beauty. I can't touch goodness. It's not something I touch, uh, it, it, but it, but on the other hand, we have to say that there is a certain uh, fundamentum, uh, in, in, there's a certain foundation in the thing for that relationship with my intellect. It's not something purely subjective. It's something which is objective in the sense that there's a foundation for the thing, and it's subjective in the sense that there's a sort of dynamic relationship between my intellect and the thing. People, people, people get this absolutely wrong uh, when it comes to this sort of strict dichotomy between the objective and the subjective. Really, reality, there's a dynamic relationship. Truth exists for the intellect to know. That, that, that statement absolutely obliterates both the subjective and the objective, completely subjective and completely objective approaches to all of these things. Because the my intellect is ordered towards truth. Uh, my intellect is ordered towards being, and being is ordered towards my intellect. And that is the sort of formation of truth. It isn't this uh, this either or approach that people like to get into. So, sorry for my rant session. I know that's not what you asked, but that's my answer. Thomism, universal philosophy, of the church, so true. Okay, okay, okay. Uh, I wanted to be asked this question. I wanted to be asked this question. Is beauty transcendental? Yes and no. 
So what is a transcendental, you ask? A transcendental is a relationship that exists in, uh, well, a transcendental is some sort of uh, re- uh, some sort of relation of being to something else that exists in being as such. So it exists in all being. So being insofar as it is uh, unified, has uh, insofar as it is not something else is unity. Being insofar as it related to the intellect is truth. Being insofar as it is related to the will is love, you know, goodness. So what we have to be very clear about is a transcendental, properly speaking, and uh, a transcendental simplicator is, is a certain relation of being that exists primarily and immediately. Okay, that's going to be important. Because beauty, there is not a faculty which is transcendentally related to being in order to form beauty. Rather, beauty is a certain is uh, mediated through truth and goodness. So beauty is secundum quid, a transcendental, but it's not. It, it's a it's a transcendental in a certain mediated way. So that's why I say yes and no. Okay. Truth is to the mind as chopping is to the axe. So true, King. Uh, so are you interested in any philosophical topics that don't have any obvious theological importance, philosophy of languages, science, etc.? Um, yeah, not really. Um, yeah, not really. I guess if you want to say mathematics, but mathematics has quantity as its formal object. Okay, so favorite meal. Oh, this is a good question. What's my favorite meal? Hmm. Lexi makes some fantastic beef stroganoff. Actually, no, 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 no. My dad. My dad, uh, after after every time we would, we would shoot deer. He would cut out the the back straps to the deer and cut them into like tiny square thingies. Not really squares, more like rectangles. And then he would uh, saute them with garlic, onion, uh, salt, and pepper, and then put cheese on it. And then we would put them on sub rolls and eat them. That is my favorite meal right there. Would you like to learn uh, know more about metaphysics? Go and check out christianbwagner.com and click on the courses option and hit metaphysics. So true. So are the saints in heaven distinguished by matter? Yes, but not 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 in that they have um, not that not in that their their souls are united uh, to their bodies, but in that their souls are ordered towards uh, single matter. This is why the the, the scotus. The Scotus claptrap just doesn't work. It's like, cry. They don't usually actually argue based upon the differentiation of the saints. Well, I, I think I think it's um it's sort of like a normie Scotus thing to do. Like the like the I'm not like other girls. I I, I hate oh, that the, sort of the, Scotus. The Twitter Scotus GC. Yeah, the, yeah. the Twitter Scotus is I'm like I'm not like I'm not a Thomist. I'm not like other girls. It's kind of like, <laughs> wait, never mind. I'm not I'm not gonna go into that example. Oh dear. No. You saved yourself. I did save myself. So did you do you have any of anything else to add? 
on this question? Yeah. Um. Nothing. Not nothing that's specific enough to say briefly. No. Oh, I did. Oh, somebody replied to my thread. Oh no. I, I did like a mini. I did a mini thread this morning, because okay, I'll, I'll share my screen, and Hassan might get in trouble about this. But uh, oh no, I'm off Twitter at the moment. For, okay, for uh, but um, but yeah. somebody somebody basically uh, he he tweeted this and he said, uh, okay, parents who parent who is pro chastity but anti younger marriage is setting their children up for fornication frustration and failure. And you basically had a bunch of dudes in the comments who were like, yeah, I was addicted to pornography in my early twenties because I wasn't married. It was like idiots. Yeah. Yeah. So basically I was like, actually, um, if you're not able to say with Tobias now, Lord, you know that I take this wife of mine oh, not because of lust, but of noble purpose that you, you have no place in getting married. Um, if you're, if your main goal is lust, then you have no place in getting married. And, and I explained, uh, the, the teaching on, on, chastity and marriage while also um while also emphasizing that the marital debt does exist um due to concupiscence but but yeah pe people uh, and somebody somebody just uh quote tweeted me i haven't read it so i don't know whether he's like anti me or not but it's like boom <laughs> a lot of tweets so I'm, i might read it later i don't know because i have something to do directly after this so man i actually i think like People, people who think of marriage, think of their wife as like an outlet for their genitals. They, they shouldn't be getting married. And, it, and honestly, it's like, it's really disgusting. It's so, it's so bad. People, people are like, oh, but scripture says it's better to, to be married than to, than to burn with passion. It's like, yes. What do you think that means? What, what, how? how can you come to the conclusion that this means that it that like oh i have like a, a pornography addiction therefore i have to get married so i can use my wife instead of porn like what no it it, it means that rather than having these passions at all rather than behaving like an animal at all you should be married it's a, it's a, oh, that the one, the one author Dende read that most people actually uh, commit this, uh, commit the vice of bestiality more often than they think so because they, they usually treat their uh, spouse uh, yeah, not as a person, Bouvier. but as an animal. Yeah. Yeah. Cause, cause, uh, cause Bouvier basically says that there's two ways that you can, so, so you know how St. Thomas differentiates the kinds of uh, marital unchastity in marital intercourse, right? Do you remember? Yes, yes. Uh, using your wife as a prostitute. Um, uh, there, there's, there's three. The, okay, uh, the two as, main as ones. Any, are... As any, as as you would any woman. Uh, yeah, that's, as you would that's a prostitute, a and then, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah I don't, so the, I don't remember the one, that's, the, the one that's only venial is when you treat her as a special and singular source of pleasure, right? And the one that's the ones that are mortal are going to be when you make use of the of your right to request uh without due regard for the fact that she is this woman but simply that she is the only licit woman right yeah yeah exactly so that that that's that's mortal right uh 
and then it goes further if it's like i don't even really care what species this is so long as i'm allowed to use it to for myself right yeah that's that's even that's even worse and you'd be surprised because uh, a lot of the people especially who have like these weird like racial sexual obsessions they have like a, a deep problem with this they, they they effectively use a person of another race as if they were an animal it's really bad dude oh this is there you go hassan you've been debunked <laughs> what happened what's we what's neat oh you don't did i do i might keep yeah i'm sharing uh what's needed is sex positive traditionalism What's needed is the virtue of chastity. That's what's needed. I'm going to show you. I'm going to send you something. Oh, man. Uh, Gonzalo you know, and I were looking at something the other day. Uh, you, I'm, gonna, I'm about to show you some of the I've, words. And, and, you know, I have I've converted. I've converted in, like, my among my personal male Catholic friends. I've converted people to, to this position, too. Because with, with friends that are getting married, uh, looking to marriage... Uh, recently married and like we'll, we'll talk about kind of like uh, good practices or, or whatever. I always bring up chastity in marriage because most of the time they've never heard anybody their entire lives talk about it. I'll always bring it up with them. And, and people in, and you have, you have a lot of people that are just viciously opposed to it. But when, when you start, when you start making the, the analogy between fasting and, and marital chastity and uh, the the importance of of penance in the Catholic life and the importance of the virtue of temperance. Once once you start explaining that to people, that you could see like the, the the little wheels moving in their heads, and they're like, "Wait a second, yeah, it doesn't make sense just to kind of be an animal in marriage. You know, it, it makes sense to actually uh, act like a human being and not like uh, you were raised in a jungle. You know, it makes sense." It, it does. It, it's like, wait, actually, people 200 years ago who were not addicted to porn when they were like in late middle school, early high school, they probably wouldn't have acted like this. Are you, you're, you're, you're thinking now you're thinking now, you know, they probably wouldn't have done this. They probably wouldn't have done that. They probably wouldn't have wouldn't have engaged in that. They would have thought that this would have been ridiculous. Well, actually, what is what is causing this? Is it is it because you live in some sort of different advanced culture than they do? Or maybe it's because most people are porn brain. It's it's. Also, I don't. I don't know which one could it be. Which there's one? There's an be? aspect. There's an aspect of this that comes from the fact that people don't understand that baptism grants an ascetic vocation. Mm. Like, you you are as a Christian, you are an ascetic. It doesn't matter whether you become or a monk, a monk or a priest or a nun. You are an ascetic. That's part of your lifestyle. That's part of your anticipation of fulfillment of desires in god you you cannot behave as if you're just like a pagan who happens to believe in certain articles of faith and go to a liturgy that pagans don't mm. it's it's not enough to just say okay well i'm gonna like follow the bare minimum of natural law and i'm gonna follow the divine law but those councils the divine councils those things about how to get closer to god through the moral life that's for monks you can't say that there's no basis for that in scripture. There's no basis for like two tiers of modesty or like two tiers of, of, of these sorts of things. It's, it's just nonsense. Like, you know, you, one of the things you've got to keep in mind is that back in the day, the monastic fasting observances were actually the fasting observances for everyone, but you were dispensed from those rules 
if you had menial labor to do, right? Mm -hmm. So that's what you have to understand is that there ought to be a consciousness that the whole of Christianity is a monastic vocation. The whole of Christendom is monastic, is ascetical. Um, one of the things that made Western Europe great was our monastic life. The fact that the monks were in every single settlement teaching people how to live this way, teaching people how to be vigilant over their own souls and the various technologies like the veil and various other things that help people to live by the divine councils and not only by the bare minimum of the law. Um, how to get closer to God, not merely like to sever your friendship from him, not, not merely to stop severing your friendship from him in mortal sin. It's, it's really, uh, it's not, it's I not. I won't, I won't stop until all women are dressed like this. Okay, Christian. Thanks. Why do you got to, so why do you have to associate with me? Like stuff like this with me. It's not, it's not very nice. <laughs> people accusing me of being a crypto muslim well, well you know it's, it's, it's because i'm white you're brown therefore i could do it you can but i'm here <laughs> cry about it <laughs> i wonder um, oh this is actually a really good point i wonder how uh just how much the porn addictions have affected the religious vocation crisis i bet it's huge yeah yeah uh, you know because a, a lot of people are are influenced uh against the life of chastity because of because of pornography addiction well against a life of, of perpetual chastity uh because of pornography addiction so i bet i bet it's actually pretty huge um there's there there's a guy uh in my replies who's actually uh doing a book of some sort he's at the angelicum he's doing a book of some sort of marital chastity uh I will I'll pull up his tweet because you guys should all follow him because he seems like a pretty cool guy. Uh you should uh, can we deal with the question just before the one you just answered? Uh the one on uh the one by Memento Mori on okay, so so Gabriel N when he says if religious life is the objectively higher calling, etc. Right? Yeah. I kind of want to jump in on that because this is this is a question I've actually seen a lot and it and it shows people don't understand how divine love works at a basic level. I, I don't mean to like rag on you, but you gotta understand that like God doesn't love you with the same intensity with which he loves the Virgin Mary. She called her to the highest possible vocation of a human person, right? She was called to you when we say like the Lord is with thee we mean that at a level that no other human person can attain it's essential to who she was and what she was predestined to be right it's not it is completely incorrect to think that god loves all of the elect with the same intensity or loves all human beings with the same intensity we are all given a different particular vocation because we are loved differently okay but but just because someone is called to the priestly vocation doesn't mean that they're called to a higher holiness than someone who's called to the lay life. Of course, because there are priests who go to hell and lay people who go to heaven. So how could it be that way? This isn't how it works. You are called to be perfect insofar as you are called to be perfect. In the particular mode, you were called to be perfect. It's not it's not correct to think of the perfection that you're called to as 
some kind of unparticularized thing. This is the sort of thinking that leads to people saying that, like, uh, that it's just as good for women to do the elections, just as good for women to do this, or just as good for women to do that. The, of course, like the, um, the you, you got to consider like that the uh, um, that like the priestly life and the mere celibate religious life are distinct vocations too. One is holier than the other because one is a special kind of uh, relation to Christ that the other doesn't have, right? And and at the same time, there are many celibate uh, monks who are not ordained who are going to be holier people than some of the priests who are, who are monks. This, this, this is, uh, it's frankly very silly to think that uh, the amount that God loves you is particularized by which calling he like calls you to. This is, this is a huge mistake, huge mistake. Uh, please don't think in these terms. Please think in terms of how is God calling me towards himself and what are the metrics for the perfection that I'm called to seek by that path? think this way instead uh reward in the age to come okay look in the in the same way in the same way the metrics of your perfection are defined by your vocation but you could be a more perfect husband than someone else someone else is the degree to which she is a perfect wife yeah in the same way you can be a more perfect husband than the degree to which someone else is a perfect priest you see the, the reward that you receive is proportionate to the degree by which you reach the perfection, which is qualified by the path that you are called to. It's not like a priest who goes to heaven and a layman who goes to heaven necessarily have greater and lesser reward, respectively. This is just not the case. You, ha you have to remember that the degree of glory that you receive in the age to come is proportionate to the degree of justification that you receive before you die, Right. So, yeah, there you go. There we go. Uh, okay. Anything you want to do, Christian? You're staring uh, dumbfounded at the screen. No, I was, I was checking my, I was checking that thread that you sent me. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> It's so bad. There was a whole discourse uh, Gonzalo was showing me, a whole discourse over um, whether or not women that are like um, Christian women who are like repentant fornicatresses are possibly marriageable. And the answer was usually no, because they, they don't even, they're not really repentant. They don't really know what that means. Fornicatrixes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, fornicatress. What's wrong with that word? <laughs> Keep going. I could use another. I, I'll use another fornicatrix. one. Fornicatrix. Anyway, I didn't say fornicatrix. I said fornicatress. That's oh, I thought you said much weirder. Yeah. So, the, so basically, like, um, you know, when you have, where, where, basically, the question was like, um, if a woman is somebody who has a past, right? Uh, is this just the same thing as a guy who used to have a porn addiction that he's trying to get over? No, of course not. It has different effects. And also fornication has different effects on men and women. So does porn use have different effects on men and women, right? So like, it's not the same, but whatever happens to you, you can't just be like, 
oh, I'm going to start going to a Latin mass and dressing nice and like, I don't know, smoking cigars slash baking bread with my grandma after mass on Sundays. This is not, this is not recovery from what you've done to yourself. Receiving the sacraments means now you've been given something you've got to do something with, right? You have to work upon what you've been given in the sacraments. You can't just be like, okay, whenever I fall again, I'm going to go to confession. And that's going to be like every week. I'm not going to do anything to root out these negative inclinations that I'm falling into. I'm not going to do anything to learn about how to identify or to do that. I'm not going to learn how these things have affected my ability to form proper human relationships. I'm not going to root out the issues that have led to this and that have come from this. The, when somebody goes, oh, uh, I'm a, I go to church every Sunday and I go to confession every week and I bake, bake, I bake cakes with my grandma right for 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 my nieces and nephews or something like that you you have not actually started trying to sort out the problems right what you're doing is you're using religion as a coping mechanism to pretend you never did any of that stuff that's not acceptable mm -hmm. and you and the guys can't do this about porn addiction either mm -hmm. right you can't do that if you, if you want to get married, you have to sort your stuff out and you should choose someone who has repented of things that make you relatable to one another. A woman who has had, who's been like run through by like 20 people, right? And then is like repented and now she's trying to deal with it, right? Even if she's one of the sincere ones who's trying to deal with it. Don't try and, don't look for like a kissless virgin husband who's also like a giga chat. What are you doing? You, you're, it's not a question of whether or not you're worthy of it. It's a question of whether or not you're going to actually be able to interface with this person. And you're not. Yeah. You should probably so, just, uh, you know, the, oh, what's, what's her name? The, like the one, uh, female saint that's, uh, the one female saint that was on her way. She was, she was like a prostitute or something. And she was on her way to a, uh, to Jerusalem and she slept with a bunch of pilgrims because she wanted to pay her way just because she was interested in going to Jerusalem. Then she went to Jerusalem. She's like, Oh crap. I'm St. Mary of Egypt. St. Mary of Egypt. Yes. Thank you. Yeah. You gotta be like St. Mary of Egypt. All you women, uh, you should just go into the desert and, uh, not eat and lay on the ground all the time. And yeah, that's what you should do. Yes. Say read, read about this St. Mary of Egypt. Um, but yeah, I, I, I don't I just don't understand the um the mindset that's just like oh somebody's had these uh, extreme moral disorders and gave it up like 2 years ago because um they had some sort of religious experience and um has not really done any sort of uh ascetical work on those inclinations mm -hmm. and therefore they are completely fine, uh, just just completely fine to um, to engage in something like marriage. I, I've I, never, sorry, go on. Yeah, I've, I've never I've never got that because it's just like common sense, you know. When you meet people who've uh, actually there, there's a there's a fun story from uh, from the Desert Fathers that I remember reading about this. You had a certain man. He was a he was a thief. He was a robber. He would go around sleeping with a bunch of women, killing people, stealing their stuff. 
and eventually he went to go steal from a monastery and there was one of the one of the saints uh one, one of the famous uh saintly desert fathers those guys slept for like two hours a night and <laughs> spent all day praying and ate like a piece of grass a day they were insane but um he he had went uh to rob one of them and uh, he decided not to kill uh, him i think he killed a few people uh in the monastery but then he went and ran they they went to go run away and the and the the very saintly monk was let realized that they had forgotten to steal one of his things so he took the thing and he like started running after them it was like wait wait you forgot to steal this and then they're like <laughs> yeah they're like you forgot to steal all my stuff and and he and the guy came back and he's like what the heck of what the heck am i doing the, these guys they they literally just don't care about about this they they are so disattached and he was so impressed uh by that that he decided to convert but that's sort of a background story but when he became a monk he uh he went to go seek counsel uh from other monks because after even after years of the extreme uh, ascetical life of the desert fathers he still uh, was struggling with with certain images uh, in his in his mind, with certain inclinations, with certain desires, and it was very harshly uh, struggling with him, and it made it very difficult for him to be a monk. And he finally was freed from it um, after a few years. But yeah, th this sort of stuff, um, sin has consequences, yeah. and it isn't something that you can just uh, sweep under the rug. I mean, some saints, yes, have their miraculous conversions. Uh, but but most they they stick with uh, certain attachments for the rest of their lives. Okay, I want to deal with something because two um, and I understand that this is this always happens when I talk about this and there's women around. Two women have misunderstood what I said. Uh, let uh, me explain. Common, common problem. Okay, but let's let's be nice about this. <laughs> okay, the, okay, I'm, I'm sorry, women. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry, women. So, so first of all, go forth and multiply applies to the species, not to the individual. Okay. Okay. I see it right so what, what what we mean by this is that yes the primary end of of the marital act and of marriage mm -hmm. is of course procreation which is not only the conception of but the raising of, of children very true mm -hmm. but uh procreation properly speaking in the individual intention of marriage is not primary the primary part is fides the primary part is the is the rendering of the obligation to the other and this is only necessary for somebody when they lack the uh, the grace of special continence. However, however, let me put it this way. There are women who are called to marriage who have fornicated and the same for men. Okay. Mm. I am not saying that a woman who has had fornication shouldn't be married ever. Oh, to be, to be clear, saying, when I, that was a joke when I said that they yes. should all go live like St. Mary, Mary of yeah, Egypt. This, this is a joke. Apologies if you misunderstood. It's an option for, it's, it is an option for some, especially women who've like had like horrific prostitution for many years. It may be that, look, let's let's be clear here. We need to talk about discernment of celibacy a little bit because people don't seem to understand it. When you strive for premarital chastity, when you strive for the chastity that is proper to the life of the single, two things can happen when you are successful. One possibility, you are, you are very clearly called to celibacy. Right. Or maybe less clearly, but it becomes more clear as you discern it. And the way that this is recognized is that you begin to have what's called the special grace of celibate chastity or, or, or celibate continence or special continence. And what this is, is that 
when you start to meet eligible people of the opposite sex, you consider them purely from the perspective of their humanity. And when you consider them in terms of their sexedness or genderedness, it's it merely becomes a sort of like pastoral consideration that you take in mind, right? Or you do have this, but it's extremely weak, right? Not to say that you don't, you have like a destroyed libido or sexual interest or something, but simply that your that grace raises you to a direct marriage with with Christ rather than a rather than a immediate one. So, uh, okay, let's go back to the question about uh, in procreation. Yes, procreation is the first, the first, uh, the first, uh, the primary um, end of marriage considered as an institution. And it's the and this means for the species, but for the individual, it's because you don't have special continence that you need to marry, because otherwise, your your sexual faculties will gradually drift away from their proper orientation, whether supernatural or natural, and it will drift towards the direction of sin. Now, there's something else we have to talk about. When Christian said sins of sin has consequences, but we'll talk about that in a minute. This is really important, so I'm glad we're talking about this. Uh, the other possibility, if you don't discern, uh, if you don't end up receiving the special grace of continence, as you said, as as uh, one woman said, celibacy is a special vocation only for the few, right? Yes, the normal case when you start to properly pursue chastity, which we will talk about in a second, right? When you start to properly pursue chastity, what you come to what you come to is that you will no longer habitually struggle or struggle at all with problems like the unnatural vices. You will no longer struggle with uh, strong desires to, to fornicate. And when you meet people, you will no longer constantly feel like there's this fear of missing out that you're not pursuing a sexual relationship with that person that you're interested in uh, physically, right? It's this fear of losing out. Uh, St. John Paul II talks about this in Love and Responsibility. Excellent book on this, right? I really recommend that. He talks about the stages of building up this self-control, right? Continence, the continence of, a, uh, of somebody who ought to be married, which ought to be established before seeking marriage. And the continence which is established supernaturally for someone who ought to then discern something beyond marriage, right? So... When you have this first kind of continence, the natural continence, you're still going to meet people and consider them if you find them attractive. You're going to consider them under the aspect of a possible marriage partner. But you will no longer look at them in this emotional or physical objectifying way. You will no longer look at them as a way to gratify yourself. And worse, this especially happens with women who repent from fornication. You will no longer treat every single possibly eligible man as someone to overwrite your sexual traumas with. This is not how you should treat human beings. Okay. Uh, this is extremely important. So when you, when you, uh, when you look at uh, uh, what Christian said, sin has a consequence, right? We have to understand something here. Marriage is the pinnacle of friendship in human nature. It is the greatest natural friendship possible because religion considered merely under the, as the aspect of nature, right? Natural religion is a potential part of justice, but it doesn't belong to the kind of love that exists in friendship, a special affection by uh, participation and mutual indwelling within one another. 
you don't receive an impulse and imprint from and towards the other when in mere religion only in supernatural charity but in marriage which is a kind of friendship the most perfect friendship because the the degree of union and the intensity of union achieved in marriage is so total compared to the kind of union achieved in other kinds of friendship right therefore friendship is something essential to the beginning of marriage okay in fact marriage itself is essentially a friendship right uh, it loses something proper to it when you are validly married to someone and you you're no longer friends it's an abomination right so let's let's talk about this a little bit more since as saint john paul ii teaches affective maturity is primarily taught within the family the school place of humanity the school place of relation the school place of friendship when you have parents that don't have a good relationship or they're divorced or there's just different guys in and out of your house all the time right we'll talk about arranged marriage later because actually saint thomas has things to say about that indirectly uh basically when you enter in when you are like a, a child and you don't see a good relationship between your parents the school place of marriage which comes from the perfect marriage between a man and a woman breaks it, it breaks down your ability to uh to form good relationships with other people in general right and if you fornicate very very similarly but worse right if you fornicate your ability to keep good friendships in general will suffer your ability to have good relationships with your cousins with your extended family will degrade in societies full of fornication extended family breaks down for a reason because it's more difficult to hold these kinds of friendships right intergenerational friendship goes completely in cultures that have better sexual morals there your families who are friends with your family and it's gone for so long back you don't even know how your families got involved with each other right it's lost to the history of your families that doesn't exist in societies that have chronic chronic endemic why because the sexual faculty is in a certain sense the source of our abilities to have friendships in general because of something that in Thomism is called the principle of the maximum or exemplar causality since the highest kind of friendship is marriage in a certain sense your conception of marriage your conception of sexuality your sexual directivity within within yourself your inclinations determines your ability to form these proper relationships with other people in general okay so this is very noticeable and it's one of the reasons why for example people who struggle with same-sex attraction have got such strange and off-putting social behaviors with other people they're constantly churning in and out of different friendships uh non-sexual friendships i mean they often have very bad relationships with their families even if they're pro-lgbt and there's lots of reasons for it and it comes down to these inclinations in the soul which are downstream from sexuality now if you have a bad sexual past it's not over for you it's not but you have to be honest with yourself about the fact that you now have inclinations long-term that are not simply solved by no longer looking at pornography, no longer masturbating, no longer committing fornication. 
It's not enough. You have to find the inclinations that have been rooted in yourself from these errors and solidified over years. And you must learn how to identify and root them out of yourself. Okay. This is a necessity. It's a necessity. And to illustrate this, I'm going to read something briefly from uh, Father uh, Scopo Lawrence Scopoli's um, Spiritual Combat, which is a classic. Everybody should read this. Uh, he says uh, his first chapter is on what Christian perfection consists in and that the attainment of this involves a struggle and the four things necessary for this conflict. P please listen to this in detail, right? If you wish, O beloved in Christ, to reach the height of perfection by drawing near to your God to become one spirit with him, and no aim can be imagined or expressed which is greater or nobler than this, you must before all else gain a true idea of what constitutes general spiritual perfection. There are many who have believed it to consist exclusively in outward mortifications, in hirshits and disciplines, in long watchings and fastings, and in other bodily sufferings and chastisements. Others, again, especially women, think that they have reached the climax of perfection when they say lots of prayers, attend much services and offices, and are regularly at church and communion. Some, indeed, and among this class, not a few religious who have withdrawn themselves from the world are among them persuade themselves that perfection entirely depends on regular attendance at the hours of liturgical prayer, on silent solitude and exact observance of their rule. And, uh, and thus some in these and others in those external actions suppose perfection to consist, but they are all deceived. For although these practices are sometimes means of gaining the spirit of perfection and sometimes are its fruits, yet in no sense can it ever be said that true spiritual perfection consists in these. Unquestionably, they are means most efficacious for obtaining spirituality when properly and discreetly employed, for by them we gain strength against our own sinfulness and frailty and are fortified against the assaults and snares of our common enemies. And in short, we are provided with the spiritual helps necessary to all the servants of God and especially those who have but lately entered the service. They are also fruits of the spirit and truly spiritual persons who keep under and keep subdued the body because it has offended its maker and in order to keep it low and submissive to his commands, in those who live in solitude and silence, in order to avoid even the least occasions of sin and to have their conversation in heaven and who give themselves entirely to the service of God and to works of mercy, who pray and meditate upon the life and passion of Christ, not for the sake of curiosity and not for mere devotional feeling, but that they may gain deeper knowledge of their own corruptness and of God's mercy and goodness that they may be more and more inflamed with the love of God and the hatred of themselves. Not obviously hatred of the self in the absolute sense. Here it's like when you hate your parents, as Christ says, right? You, you rank them as a lower priority of, uh, compared to something else. Following the Son of God by self-denial, taking the cross upon their shoulders, frequenting the sacraments with the view of glorifying the divine majesty, that they may be more closely united with God and gain fresh strength against their enemies. To others, however, who found perfection entirely in external practices, such works would bring greater ruin than open sin. Not that these works could be bad in themselves, far from it, for in themselves they are very good. But in consequence of their mistaken use, they have these sad results. Because those who practice them are so wrapped up in what they do, they leave their hearts a prey to their own evil inclinations, to the devices of Satan. He sees them wandering from the right path, and not only does he leave them to the enjoyment of these exercises, 
that lets them vainly fancy that they are roaming amidst delights in paradise and persuade themselves that they are born upwards even to angelic choirs and that they feel the presence of God within them. Such persons are so absorbed sometimes in curious, deep, delightful thoughts. They become, as it were, oblivious of the world and of all creatures, and they seem to be wrapped even up to the third heaven. But in how great an error these persons have entangled themselves, how far they're distant from the true perfection that we seek, may easily be gathered from their lives and their conversation. Very important, their lives and their conversation. In everything, whether it be great or small, they seek merely their own advantage, and they like to be preferred before others, and they are self-willed and opinionated. They are blind to their own faults, sharp-sighted for the faults of others, and they severely condemn the sayings and doings of others. But if you only touch with your finger a certain vain reputation that they hold themselves in, and are pleased to be held by others, if you bid them to discontinue any of their regular and formal devotions, they will be at once angry and exceedingly disturbed. If God himself were to visit them with trials and infirmities, which never come without his appointment or permission, by the way, and which are the tests of his servant's faithfulness, or if he permits them to be sorely persecuted, to learn a true knowledge of themselves, and be brought back to the way of true perfection, immediately then the false foundation is to be discovered. The miserable condition of the proud heart will be seen. For in all events, whether adverse or prosperous, they're willing to be resigned and humble themselves under the mighty hand of God, acquiescing in his just, though hidden judgments. Neither will they, in imitation of the most lowly and patient son of God, abase themselves below all creatures and love their persecutors and enemies as dear friends, because they are the instruments of divine goodness, and they work together for their mortification, perfection, and salvation. And so it is evident all such persons are in great danger, since the inward eye will be darkened by which they ought to see themselves and their outward actions which are good. They attribute to themselves then a high degree of perfection, becoming more and more puffed up and readily pass judgment, yet they themselves need a special miracle in fact to be converted, for nothing short of that would have any effect at this point. It is much more easy to convert and bring back an open sinner to the path of truth than the man whose sin is hidden and mantled with the semblance of virtue. And so you see and distinctly see then from what I've said above that the essence of the spiritual life does not lie in any of those things that I have alluded to. That is devotional feeling, various actions and external activities, even converting other people. It consists in nothing else but the knowledge of the divine goodness and greatness and of our own nothingness and our various pronenesses to all evil in the love of God and hatred of self then, in entire subjection not only to God, but for the love of him, to all creatures, in giving up our own will and in completely resigning ourselves to the divine pleasure itself. Moreover, in willing and doing all this with no other wish or aim than the glory and honor of God, the fulfillment of his will because it is his will and because he deserves to be loved and served. This is the law of love graven on the hearts of the faithful by the hand of the Lord himself. This is the self-denial which is required of us. This is his sweet yoke and light burden. This is that obedience to which our Redeemer and Master calls us both by word and example. But if you aspire to such a pitch of perfection, you must daily do violence to yourself, courageously attacking, destroying all your evil desires and affections. And in great matters, as well as in small, it's necessary then to prepare yourself and hold yourself in readiness for this conflict. For you will only be crowned who is brave in this battle. Doubtless, this is the hardest of all struggles, because by fighting ourselves, we're at the same attacked by ourselves. And on this account, the victory is obtained in such a conflict. 
it will be of all others the most glorious and most clear to most dear to god therefore if you use every endeavor to mortify yourself and you tread down all your inordinate affections inclinations and rebellious passions even in the very smallest matters you would be rendering to god a greater and more acceptable service than if whilst permitting some of your inclinations to remain unmortified you scourge yourself till you bleed and fast more rigorously and practice austerity greater than the desert fathers or convert souls by the very thousands for although in itself the conversion of souls is dearer to god than a mortification of some irregular desire it's not your duty to will and perform what's more excellent but that which before us god strictly desires and requires of you for he doubtless doubtless seeks and desires of you your self-conquest and the thorough mortification of all your passions rather than that you willfully leaving even one of them alive in you should perform in some other direction some greater more noticeable service for his sake and now you see wherein the real perfection of a christian lies and that to obtain it you must enter upon a constant and sharp warfare against yourself you must provide yourself with four safe and highly necessary weapons that you may win the palm and finally be a conqueror in the spiritual conflict and these are distrust of self trust in god spiritual exercises and prayer i highly recommend this book you should read the rest of it but this first chapter illuminates everything we've just been talking about uh, i hope that's helpful uh very briefly it's lawrence capoli i think it's lorenzo scapoli in italian yeah uh so so to go to uh uh Wait, is, Sc is scapoli the one really dumb guy no oh, okay no. okay i'm thinking of so, a different one okay so uh to, to quickly go through uh arranged marriage arranged marriage was on, only ever terminated in a valid marriage when the people who were seeking marriage with one another actually entered into the necessary mutual love necessary for a marriage which is to actually will to one another with a certain uh what's called the concupiscence of friendship not necessarily sexual properly sexual concupiscence unless they entered into the proper concupiscence of friendship where they actually had the affections where they desired for one another that they themselves would give the goods of marriage and receive the goods of marriage from the other. Dang, Hassan, so, I, yeah. think, uh, I think the all the news is right, and we have a lot of, and the feds are starting to watch us because we have a second woman in the chat, apparently. Yeah, I said there were two, but uh, yeah, so... Feds. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I answered that earlier when she said it. Uh, but yeah, the, the point is that, like, arranged marriage... For it to be valid, as St. Thomas says, friendship, uh, friendship pertains to the, friendship pertains to the, uh, to the, friendship pertains to the, um, the essence of marriage. Uh, by the way, I see you frowning at this message here, uh, counter-reformation spirituality. Uh, this is not how the church works. Uh, the do, church. Do you mean, do you mean like Renaissance spirituality yeah. is that what you mean yeah renaissance stuff is cringe oh you're italian man i see okay well that's you're that's an italian, you're an italian. Oh, that, okay okay oh no, no 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 the woman the woman is from the feds the italian yeah. man is from the vatican okay yes. now i'm getting okay. it straight okay okay so uh uh you're not a big fan of counter-reformation spirituality that's fine just go read gregory of nice's uh, on virginity or go and read St. Augustine talk about this, or read St. Thomas's On the Perfection of the Spiritual Life. You'll find all the same concepts. Uh, if you don't like this because you think it tends you towards scrupulosity, you have the problem, not Scopoli, and not any of the Counter-Reformation theologians and spiritual writers. Um, if you're saying that um, 
yeah, mortal sin is conf is cancelled after a sincere confession. We're not talking about the guilt of the sin remaining, bro. We're talking about the temporal dispositions left behind by sin remaining in the soul. We're not talking about the temporal debt being left behind, which is remitted by indulgences either. We're talking about the effects upon the brain and upon the physiology, which affects the workings of the mind that are left over after you commit certain sins. You will not find anywhere in scripture or in the fathers or in the medievals, the concept that going to confession removes all of the effects on your way of thinking and all of the effects on your habits that flow from uh, that fro that flow from confession. If this was the uh, from in, in the grace that flows from confession, if this was the case, we would not exercise children before baptizing them. It wouldn't make sense. We are removing temporal dispositions or and praying for the removal of temporal dispositions. None of these things make sense. You have to understand that in sin there is a tri there is a triplex thing that has to be taken into account. There is the very guilt of sin, which is remitted in repentance and perfect contrition or or, or uh, sacramental absolution. There is the temporal debt, which is remitted either by the merits of the church, by her prayers for you, or by uh, indulgences where it's directly applied, or through your own penances. And third, there is the very temporal effect that follows from immoral actions that damage our faculties, okay? Someone who says that if you fornicate a ton for five years, right, and you take tons of drugs for five years, and you go to confession once and you're sorted, they are delusional. That is not how it works. It's not what we have ever taught. You can go back and you can look at anything you like. If you want to try and find a source that argues something like this, please bring it up in a future stream. But there is nothing like this. I guarantee it myself that there is nothing in there. You can ask your priests if there's anything like that and see if they can find it for you. I guarantee it does not exist. Okay. Um, so this is this is uh, this is uh, uh, super important. The question about whether or not we can know an eternal penalty for mortal sin is cancelled after confession. This is not about a valid sacramental confession. This is saying that you cannot have absolute certainty in your justification, which is dogmatic, right? Yeah. 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 You can only have moral certainty that you're justified even right after confession, because it depends on your own actions and not only on the revealed actions of God, right? Because when you go to confession, your attrition, your attrition that you have might not actually be what the, def the definition of attrition requires. You might more so feel like, uh, I hate myself for not being better, and that can come from pride. Or you can be like, uh, I feel bad because of the earthly reality of the damage to my virtue. That is not attrition either. Or you can say, I feel bad because um, I don't like that someone else was harmed by something that I did. That is not the same thing as attrition. Attrition is theological in its object. Attrition is, uh, mm -hmm. I want to uh, have the, the, I don't want to suffer hell. And I want to have the uh, the reward of not suffering in heaven, right? And the pleasures of heaven. And this is something that is from the humility of the recognition of God's majesty, which, uh, which flows from a prior act of uh, supernatural ascent of faith, whereby you know that God's majesty and his threats and rewards are real, okay? Mm -hmm. If you don't have this, if you don't have this, you can't have attrition. Um, so so this is the thing, you, you have to, 
you have to understand that it's possible to make an invalid confession. Now, that doesn't mean you should worry about this all the time. Not at all. Especially if you're scrupulous, you pretty much definitely have attrition. So don't freak out about it. Every single scrupulant is like terrified of hell, right? So there's no way you don't have attrition when you go to confession. Like this is a special thing. God is loopholed in there for you. So you don't have to worry about it, right? Um, but in general, you should make sure that when you go to confession, in general, this isn't for scrupulants, but for everyone. When you go to confession, make sure that you're going at least because you're afraid of hell and you know that you deserve it by this, the, by the majesty of God acting in accordance with himself uh, and that you, you desire not to be punished. And so you desire to have a, have a relaxation from all suffering in heaven at the very least, right? Because more than that, of course, approaches perfect contrition. So, yeah, like this is something that, that you need to deal with. Um, but this is this is the thing, like no one should be dating or trying to get married who still suffers from these very serious, unremedied inclinations that flow from sexual vice. It is unjust to your future children and to your future spouse and to her existing family to marry her if you have not done any of the work to remedy the inclinations that have flowed from your errors. You have to deal with this. And women need to do the same as well. Um, uh, the question from Absurd Scandal, the answer is, the answer is yes because it's directed towards God and it's not a question of, uh, it's not a question of, oh, I have damaged my virtue, which is merely a question of earthly goods. And it's not a question of the offense of God. Uh, uh, by the way, this whole like buzzwords of like Luther and pessimism and everything, this, this is just not an argument. Like you're, you're saying original cleanse, sin is cleansed by baptism. Inclination remains. We shouldn't stress too much or we risk to fall into Lutheran pessimism. This is not, this is not in accordance with any of the spiritual advice from any of our saints. You have to constantly keep a vigilance over yourself. What do you think Peter was saying? Virile ter agite. What's that verse about, right? What's St. Peter talking about when he tells us to be wary of the creeping of the devil who roams around the world looking for souls? What do you think he's saying? What is he talking about? Be concerned that your sanctification has to be about the rooting out of everything within yourself, contrary to the love of God. If you don't take this in mind, if you don't take this in mind, and you have never taken it in mind, you should seriously question your justification. If you have never taken in mind that you love God and want to be pleasing to him, imagine being married to somebody and not wanting to do anything to remove from yourself the things contrary to their good. How, how can you call that real marital love? It's, it's a tragedy. It's an abomination for, for people to think of God in this way, to think of him not even as one to be loved and to be pleased with yourself. It's horrific. And, and this is the theological aspect. But in terms of even the earthly aspect, you shouldn't, try, you shouldn't be trying to get married to somebody when you still have 
problems that are going to dispose you to not treat them properly. Deal with those. Work on them for a couple of years. You shouldn't be getting married a year after stopping fornicating materially. You shouldn't be getting married like two years afterwards, unless you have some kind of special grace that heals these things very quickly. You, this is this is nuts. It's just insane. And and you don't act like you're entitled to people either. Yes, you should make a penance before good confession and make a sincere proposal not to fall again with the help of God and with the strength of our good will. If it's sincere, you will do what you can to learn how to identify your flaws and to begin to extirpate them. This is why so many of the saints have said mental prayer is necessary for the salvation of those who are capable of it in an ordinary sense. Mental prayer is all about, especially in the purgative way, of purging, of extirpating all of the inclinations that are causing you to fall into sin. Finding the things that are near occasion for you. Not committing mortal sin anymore isn't just like telling yourself over and over, oh, by the way, don't do that thing. It's, it's about dealing with the inclinations that dispose you towards that. And the thing is that you cannot become so tunnel vision oriented that you're like, okay, I had a fornication problem. I'm solved if I don't fornicate anymore because it has deeper effects on the way that you treat other people and that needs to be solved. And you need to learn how that works and you need to learn to get rid of these things. Again, it's not just to marry somebody and use your marital relations with them as a way to pave over your trauma. It's not just. No one, no one deserves that. And you owe to your future spouse not to treat them this way. So, this is this is uh, these are the things that you have to that you have to keep in mind. And frankly, I'm shocked that these, which are the much more uh, uh, deep ethical reflections in things like Saint John Paul II, are not looked at. And instead, you get like people making like weird conclusions about you know, say Catholic intimacy uh, and stuff like that. Anyway, sorry for the the very long rant, but uh, no, it's fine. It's fine. Bothering me. Yeah, yeah, somebody asked whether channel members have the privilege of suggesting videos for chill stream reviews and whether they'll likely be reviewed. Sure. How long is a typical chill stream, by the way? Eric and I, when we do it, usually an hour and a half, two hours. We can do like a twenty-five hour. Uh, one, but I'll have to get like a hundred of you guys to sign up for me to do that. Uh, trying to see. Oh yeah, yeah. Somebody. Uh, this is what I wanted to do. Poor Hassan was distracting me. Sorry, bro. Um, somebody uh said that somebody else should read one of Tom Woods' books. You shouldn't be reading Tom Woods. One, he's a libertarian, and that's <laughs> yes, so and, and two, and two, he he uh, he's a you know he has libertarian stuff that's concomitant. Uh, you know, weirdness always comes with libertarianism. Sorry, guys, but it's true. Uh, he uh, first he divorced his wife, who he started dating when she was fifteen, and he was twenty something, twenty five, I think. Second, uh, he's getting remarried. 
to uh, this woman, maybe woman. I don't know. I'm not sure at the moment. Uh, yeah. And uh, I, th I thought it was kind of funny. Um, somebody asked, uh, maybe she can cook. And somebody replied, uh, which one of the replies? Uh, dang. And maybe she can cook what we know she can eat. Hey, hey, close this. This is not good. Come on. Man. Okay. No, close, close it, bro. Close it. This is not good. Close what do you mean, it. close it? Close what? I already closed it. We can still see the page with the woman on it, bro. What do you mean Come you can on, still see man. it? Come on, man. Oh, no, no. It's it's because I can. I was looking at the YouTube screen. I'm really oh, sure. oh. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So what what I'm saying is that he uh the her his wife's um so called wife the the woman he's committing adultery with uh is is uh, her her size is material to the problem uh, because you know he's divorced can't get remarried he's Catholic too so yeah but either way um look at these useless guys so true. I have a I have a forty minute video. Yeah, I'll I'll, I'll do a forty minute video for a chill stream. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, we're almost at four hours, so I think I'm good. Just yeah, not dying of cringe right good, now, bro. dude. Elijah, you've been here since the beginning, bro. You've been here for four hours. Some of you guys. How does he? How does he come here? Like he comes here every Saturday. He spends so much time with with Catholics like this. He's still here. What's going on? I know. Come on, dude. You know, he, he, we, bro. He's been here for like a year. We almost got him. We almost got him. I know. Come on, Elijah. Just read the Revelation. Uh, how often do I do these chill streams? I haven't done one in like a month, but the plan is to do one every other week. So, yeah. I thought Catholics couldn't have concubines. Yeah, we can't have concubines. What the heck is he talking about? Oh, oh, the Tom Wood with the. Oh, come large... on. Dude, it is bad opinions. It doesn't oh, have to okay. come like this. Come on. Oh, oh, but bro, it's it's a fact. It's that's that's not his wife. I know it's not his wife, but like that's it's not the... the reason why you shouldn't read him. The reason you shouldn't read him is because he has things that are contrary to Catholic doctrine in it. Well, yeah, okay. Would you read a theologian who lived like that? Did you? Would you read Joseph Kleigen? No. Really? But he's he's like so important for understanding Vatican One. <laughs> Just no response. <laughs> Look, I could deal with a lot of things, but liking women that are half a foot taller than you and twice your width, I can't deal with that, man. I, I actually want a second one. No, no, bro, no. bro you're yeah. going you're going to hell for 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 like freaking job of the hut like come okay, on calm, man. calm down calm okay. down calm down okay bro bro yes it's bad that it's it's it, it's it's confusing that it's this woman but it would be just as bad as if it was any I, I know it's it's yeah. a, it's a merely material difference but it's like I, I don't i don't know it's like why are we talking about this bro okay okay but it's <laughs> It's I would you know I would get it I obviously think that it's horrendous but on like a natural level like I would get it if it's like okay homeboy like got divorced remarried like you know a normally looking person like obviously terrible shouldn't do it uh like on a natural level it's it's like 
un, under I understand why he Look, would, I, would I understand that, you know? why he recommended Tom Woods. It's because he's one of the few people that talks about how like lat Latinity and monasticism were was like central for forming Western Christianity. Well, like, he needs to be a little bit more Latinity in in, in uh in monastic with with his own life, man. Well, yeah, I'm I'm what I'm saying is that there are other authors that you can read for this. It doesn't have to be Tom Woods. He's just the meme guy that is known for talking about it. Dude, dude, did you see her? Did, did that that's not healthy but tall, bro. I can deal with healthy but tall. That's she was at least like three hundred, at least. Yeah. Like, in order to be a health, in order to be a healthy, Absolutely. in order to be a healthy three hundred, you have to be like what? Just stop, man! Why are you responding okay. to people talking about the woman being fat? What's wrong with you? Because she is, bro. <laughs> yeah, but stop. It's not necessary, bro. Stop. As, stop. As wide as she is. Oh, come on, man. Okay, you, you know, fun, stop funny story. encouraging Christians, my, guys. My, oh, my goodness. You my guys, grandfather. No, 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 no. I have a funny story to tell. I have a funny story to tell. So, oh. yeah, yeah. Co Mr. Copium. That's Hassan right now is Mr. Copium. So, uh, my – yeah, you know, this always happens like four hours into the streams. But my grandfather used to tell us stories about his grandmother. So my great great grandmother, I think she was, I think she was alive during the Civil War. I think she remembers the Civil War. That's how old she was before she passed. She she lived for a very long time. But he always used to describe her like when he would describe her to us. He was like she was five feet by five feet by five feet. It's like she was a cube. <laughs> Because she was sh short and very big. And this was like early. To I mean, to be fair, she had 18 kids. So it's like, you know. Okay, you know. I want to deal with something like an actual question. The, the no, guy dude. Me, very okay, briefly. deal with guy an says, actual question. I need to go. How? Yeah, I want to go after this, but this needs to be settled. Because he doesn't understand the distinction between de between death and guilt, right? A person only has legal debt if he debt if he has guilt inside of him. He says that's not true. You you get you receive a debt for committing an act which you are then guilty of, but after your guilt is remitted, you still have a debt. This is a serious problem in like modern Western cultures. People don't understand this. If you wrong your friend and you apologize to him and he forgives you. And he has a general expectation you're going to try and make it up to him somehow, even though he's already forgiven you. In the modern West, a lot of people would be like, oh, this guy's, this guy's forgiveness isn't sincere. He's a jackass, right? You, like the person who wronged the other pe person feels that they are being dealt with injustice for, like, by the other person for, for forgiving them without immediately writing off uh, any debt of atonement that they have, right? This is not how this works. This is why like purgatory is not merely an interior cleansing, but it's also the cleansing of like all debts that remain for sins committed, right? If you were to commit a sin, right? If you were if you were to commit a sin and then you had a guilt, right? Uh this this guilt which is then forgiven, right? Uh on account of of what you've done you remain with a certain uh, debt of atonement because you love the person that you have wronged, okay? And Christ gives us the opportunity to make it up to him. Now, baptism is different because in baptism, you're made a completely new thing, 
it made like a new creation. And so um, if a person's guilt is removed, doesn't he become innocent? Yes. Why does he have to pay a debt? Because he wasn't innocent before. Yes, you can punish innocent people, but not qua punishment, qua satisfaction. Not the same. This is absolutely ridiculous uh, thinking that doesn't actually align with anything other than modern culture. Uh, you have to, what you have to do is you have to go and learn about the divisions of justice, how this works in, uh, in like the scholastic tradition and things will make a lot more sense. Um, but basically when you've committed uh, a certain demeriting act, which for which you are guilty, there is naturally a kind of atonement towards the friend that you have wronged, right? What can you punish them for if not as satisfaction? I said it. I said it is satisfaction, not qua punishment, because a punishment qua punishment is the acting out of wrath for the sake of guilt, right? Satisfaction is not about guilt. It's about some kind of debt due, right? So we have we have two kinds of debt to of punishment, which come from uh, sin. We have the debt which comes from guilt, properly speaking. And this debt is merely to remain outside of the friendship. If you've wronged a friend, you just remain no longer the friend of that person. Uh, and that person, when you approach them penitent, they forgive you. But at this point that they forgive you, the friendship is restored. But just because the friendship is restored doesn't mean that there is no remaining debt on account of what you've actually done. Not the severing of the relationship, but the reality of the acts themselves to the other person. And in baptism, this is all removed, right? Like an indulgence, like a plenary indulgence. But this is why we do penances after confession, right? The penance after confession isn't just to interiorly change the self. That's why there's only a small one, right? It doesn't, it's only a partial penance. It doesn't do everything. No, no, it's not just a partial forgiveness because the debt of atonement due is not intrinsic to you. What is intrinsic to you is whether or not you are in a state of friendship with God, okay? Whether or not you actually have divine charity. That's the question, is, is justification itself. The satisfaction part is not part of what we properly consider justification. Christ never said and Christ actually made it very clear that some people will be forgiven after having paid the last penny, right? You have to pay the last penny. And this comes from sin committed after baptism, which hasn't been fully paid off. It is extrinsic to you because it's not actually something that dwells in your soul. It's a certain extrinsic relation. Of course, it's about you, right? But it's not like the state of your soul. That's not what venial sin is. Yes, it's predicated of you, but that doesn't mean that there is an intrinsic reality. It doesn't have an existence within you. This doesn't make any sense. Are you like a? Are you actually Catholic, or are you like a guy who denies this all this stuff, and you're like trolling a little bit? Because the explanation I've been giving you is only suitable to a Catholic. If I was going to explain it to a Protestant, it would be a bit different. Okay, 
if you want to learn about this, you need to read what St. Thomas says about suffrages and you need to read uh, like a, a various different things. You need to read Indulgentiarum Doctrina from Paul VI and you should go through what some of the manuals say about purgatory, indulgences and debt. If you don't do this, uh, you're going to be lost in like the quagmire of a modern attitude towards forgiveness and forgiveness and satisfaction. Because that, like, this is actually really bad, and it actually causes problems. And Christian and I talked about this. It causes problems in your relationships with other people if you actually think that if somebody forgives you, they haven't really forgiven you if they expect you to do anything to make up for what you've done. Exactly. Anyway, we talked about that a while ago. That was that was extremely painful. <laughs> What's going on, Christian? I just laughed at the one guy who said the Woods family has a serving size of four. I don't know why. <laughs> I don't know why. I found that to be so funny. Could you have an Anglican minister or layman one? Uh, I, I don't know. That's really not my thing. <laughs> Oh, if I know a few that I would if I Okay, we've hit four hours. Okay. Yeah, Goodbye, that's... everybody. We're leaving. We're not doing any more. Okay, ending <laughs> broadcast. <laughs>